Welcome, everyone. My name is Dallas. You're listening to Vic Food Stories, and this is the place where we talk about food in and around Victoria, British Columbia. But in today's case, we're going to be talking about a lot more than that. I'm here with the guys from Spinnakers, Paul and Patty. Hi. How are you guys doing? Good. Doing good. Excited. I, I got to say, because I've already been talking to Paul now for a couple hours here, and like I, I knew that you guys did a lot, but I, I, had, I didn't even have any idea of what all you guys are doing. Because it's, it's insane, all the different avenues that Spinnakers is now involved in and all the amazing products that are being pumped out. I think we kind of forget what's all going on sometimes, too. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I guess for me coming in from the outside and sort of looking at it all, I'm like, how, how are you doing this? And so you, you poured something here to start off. And what, what is this that we have here to drink? Uh, this is um, one of our brewer, Leva, uh, our Belgian brewer, she came in. Uh, this is her a IPA that we put into a rum barrel on uh, Christmas Eve last year. So it's been sitting, sitting in there for almost a year now. Um, and as we, we just had a sip there, we're just saying there's a lot of wood. It tastes very, very woody on this one, which is kind of nice. So when somebody is trying beer, what are the things they're looking out for? Because like I'm, I'm just disclaimer. I'm a full novice at beer. I know nothing, so I'm going to ask a bunch of weird questions. Probably no, that's a, no dumb questions. But beer, uh, so. <laughs> so what what are you looking for when you're actually trying something? Um, well, this is kind of a, 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 I guess, a challenging place to start with something that is so complex. Yeah. Uh, so you know, back in the beginning, we used to say beers are beers are beers are beers are beer because they all tasted the same and they're made by. Uh, a couple of multinational companies and they were differentiated by packaging and label color and so forth. Uh, they tasted the same. So Spinnaker's was conceived as an opportunity to create some beers with flavor. Um, and so in the early days, uh, we made English style beers. And so those beers tended to be lower carbonation, uh, maltier, hoppier. Um, they had a nose on them. Uh, and and it wanted to draw parallels with, uh, say, the kinds of language and procedures that one goes through in tasting wines. And then after a while, beers became more plentiful from more different sources. And it's really the home brewers who brought so much diversity to the game. Uh, to the point that um, as beer has evolved over the last 36 years in North America, uh, we've got to the point where uh, we originally needed to make beers that were on style. Um, and so the styles were based on the benchmarks that came out of UK and Europe. So one would always go back to what is a pills supposed to taste like? And so you go back to some Czechoslovakian pilsners and say, that's the benchmark. That's what you're trying to make. And after a while, people get accomplished at making styles the way they were supposed to be. And then we as North Americans who crave diversity um, live in a land of freedom. And so we look upon the English, European, UK styles as the benchmarks of the styles. And then we look at, at the people who are brewers there as the guardians, the keepers of the styles. And their job is to make the same beer day in, day out, year after year, 
And at their end of the career, they hand it on to the next in line who continues the process of making the same beer. Um, as North Americans, uh, we are not bound by those traditions. Um, and we, as I said, live in a land of freedom and opportunity. So we, having accomplished the process of being able to make a solid beer on style, we then decide how we want to change it up, how we want to make it ours, how we want to make it um, part of where we come from, part of who we are. And so in, in the face of globalization, what you're seeing happening in North America today is a regionalization. And so we have India Pale Ale as an example as a beer that was made in UK uh, that traveled to India. It had lots of alcohol as a preservative. It had lots of hops, another preservative. And so it enabled this barrel of beer on a boat to cross the equator a couple of times and end up in India where the troops, the expats, uh, recognized it as beer. It was different than what they probably had before because of what the rigors that it had been through, but it became an internationally acknowledged, uh, cherished style of beer. So you take that beer and you bring it into the North American context, and then it kind of took off um, in California. Uh, no, let's back up a bit. It took off in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, and in the Pacific Northwest, we live um, on the edge of the hop fields. There were great hop fields in the Fraser Valley around Chilliwack, uh, today Yakima, the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Um, and so because of, of this access to hops and different varietals of hops than were what were being grown on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, the hops of the Cascade region, the Cascade hops, uh, the Chinook hops and so forth, all had these grapefruity, citrusy kinds of notes to them, characteristics, which are just so different than um, the noble old world varietals. And we all became hop ends um, in the Pacific Northwest. That's what so I was going to ask. And you'd mentioned earlier today when we were talking about hops was like really a West Coast thing. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that, that's kind of like hops is really talked about here, Yeah, but not necessarily elsewhere. Yeah. And, and so we went through this, this phase of what I would characterize as Northwest ales. Um, and we made a beer here called Northwest Ale for a long time. Um, and it was our take on what the Americans were calling IPA. And in my language, it was not an IPA. <laughs> the IPA was what was coming out of UK and did the voyage. And it was that kind of traditional beer. Uh, so we got these crazy kinds of IPAs happening in the Pacific Northwest, which were then overtaken by kind of the, the San Diego school uh, where the contest became one of how many hops can we stuff into a bottle or a can? And at the end of the day, how undrinkable can we make it? I'm kind it's of a fan because of that. Of it's though, like <laughs> ridiculous abundance of hops. And then the next phase that came along was New England um, and um, brewers, I guess, starting in Vermont, uh, started to produce these uh, much more delicate, much more drinkable, hazy uh, IPAs with all these kind of tropical notes to them. 
So it, again, it's like a beer is a beer is a beer is a beer. They're all called IPAs, which is what this thing that's in the glass also is. But it came out of a barrel um, and is done in a much more traditional kind of Belgian style. So that beer is a beer is a beer is no longer. It can't be um, because beer can be anything now. The aftertaste on this is great. It's it's like stayed with me for quite a while, and I really enjoy it. Quite yeah. complex on that one, but that's yeah. that's way different than like I would say even other any other beer that I've had. Yeah, the aftertaste on this is very different. Yeah, it's uh, there's a beer for everyone. It's like it's that classic saying where somebody's like, I don't like IPAs or I don't like lagers, and well, you just haven't found one that suited you, uh, that type yeah. of thing. And especially with these more complex beers, we're being kind of a. a a rookie or a new new to beer uh, that's that's great that you enjoy that because it is a very challenging and uh complex type of flavor of the profile on that one i think there is there is more definitely to sort of sit and ponder almost <laughs> yeah there's a lot of um a lot of flavor compounds that come out of wood uh cal and i yesterday sat through a, a tasting of whiskeys that were made by new caledonia towards the peninsula um, and, you know, making whiskeys is, is um, uh, an intriguing process, especially in light of this IPA, in that you're taking um, a raw spirit and you're putting it in a barrel and you're asking that spirit to leach out of the barrel color and tannins and flavor compounds, which ultimately, over a period of uh, 12, 18, 20 years, becomes cherished for what it is as a whiskey. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that craft beer has uh, changed what beer is in the last 35 years, um, craft spirits, craft distilling is changing the way we perceive spirits today. So these these things that we were tasting yesterday would be by in a blind tasting recognized as being eh, 12, 18 years old. They're actually 18 to 36 months old. And it's just understanding technology in the modern world and how to manage all of these different opportunities that we have to bring flavor into the glass. So what does craft beer mean to you? Like, what does that term mean? Like, I, cause I don't know the difference. If me, someone says craft versus just regular beer. To me, craft beer is, is beer that is brewed uh, by passionate hands-on brewers yeah. <clears throat> at a small scale um, and is the antithesis of industrial beer where making uh, every can or every bottle from whichever production facility wherever in the world tastes the same. We cherish diversity, and we celebrate diversity, and we collaborate with each other from brewery to brewery to create more diversity. Um, And one of the things that I absolutely feel best about in terms of what craft beer is and craft brewers are is that we collaborate. We're all friends. Uh, We work with each other. We help each other. If somebody needs something, it's here, borrow mine. And we are the opposite again of that industrial process where we harbor secrets and we try to do end runs on our competition. 
Um, and so craft beer now is absolutely accessible, approachable. If you don't like that one here, try this one. Um, and we're very, very much at a point where as a consumer going into a liquor store, it's no longer acceptable for people who work in liquor stores to be clerks who pick up a product, scan it past the barcode, drop it in a bag and take your money. They actually have to know what they have in the store so that anybody can walk in and say, hey, I like this beer. What have you got? And people can then guide them and make um, some help them make some good choices that will get them into what they like. What would you guys say goes into a really good beer? Just in in general, is there something that you could sort of say? Classic, say great ingredients, but it's passion and like depending the 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 best beers are the ones that the the brewers and the production people are excited about they want to try making this they want to be drinking this i always found that the the best beers are the ones that yeah, the, brewer, the brewers want to drink how does that translate through into the beer like how can you tell that that's the case uh from that whole process from grain to glass it's there's a lot of attention to detail and the little the little change here a little tweak here can change the whole beer completely off so it's when you know that the this is the flavor I want to end up with. It's that attention to detail. And that comes back to that passion of paying attention and being diligent along the way. So this product is perfect and exactly where you want it. And of course, using great ingredients and, you know, all that. Oh, it doesn't hurt, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when someone says the term microbrewery, what does that mean versus this like a brewery? Bigger than us, you know? <laughs> Bigger uh, than us, smaller yeah, than us. Yeah, somewhere in the middle, yeah. Um, I'd say microbrewery is kind of an archaic yeah. term at okay. this point. Um, we're all craft brewers. We all hold the same licenses. We just function at different scales. There's there's a thousand ways to skin a cat in beer. You know, it's like you can brew, brew systems are different from every one. Ours is, like I said, saying 35 plus years old. But... Uh, Sure, it may not be as technologically advanced as some of the other ones, but we can do everything just the same. It's just a different way up that hill. 100%. And when I was in Japan in January, we got a couple tours um, of a couple of sake producers. <laughs> and seeing that the – so one of them was legitimately, if you went in there, it looked like a science lab. Yeah. It was – It was. they had the different rooms. It was wild. They had water coming from Mount Fuji out in like the the – the showroom where you could buy product they had this little thing where you could just walk up with a glass and drink water from mount fuji hmm. and like that that place was really cool then we went to this other one and it looked a lot more like a beer like distillery like it was or a brewery it was it was um it was pretty wild to see how they were radically different mm-hmm. and so you find that as well with beer producers absolutely absolutely, absolutely. no it, question it's and you're finding that as well in craft distilleries yep the range is phenomenal it's- just the same dance steps, just a different song, really, you know? So do you guys get to travel much and, like, visit other breweries and see how they do things? Yep. We, like, as, like, on, on my side, I think, as a brewer, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of the brewers in town and in Vancouver and such. So we do absolutely talk and hang out and have beers and discuss the trade. And like Paul said, it's it's really – our industry is really based on that uh, collaboration between everybody. It's us against the big guys. So, there like, there is always open conversation, exchanging of, you know – product not products but uh, well, of course products too but <laughs> <laughs> ingredients and ideas and uh, thoughts and all like that for okay. sure 
Yeah, and, and I, would, I would suggest that brewers don't shake hands. They reach out with a glass full of beer. Yeah. And say, Here, try this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's always a good first step. Yeah. You betcha. And for people that don't know, Spinnaker's is the uh, the oldest microbrewery and, or I guess craft brewery, I'll say, and, and brew pub in Canada. We're the oldest brew pub in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And for so for people who don't know that that is the case. Yes. And it was interesting that when I was reading, like before Spinnaker's opened, it was illegal to brew beer and sell beer in the same on places. Yeah. Yes. Which is that that was pretty wild for me to read about being in 2020, where it's very different now. <laughs> and I guess when you guys opened, there were some challenges with the initial opening. Um, if that was if that was the case, eh? Uh, we went through this period of what I just. Um, have always characterized as pig-headed determination uh, <laughs> that we are going to do this. And to any uh, authority who suggested that maybe that was a problem, um, my response was, I'm sorry, you don't understand what we're doing. Um, and we need you to bear with us and we will show you that what we're doing <clears throat> is not a problem. But you simply don't understand what we're doing, and and we. What was the viewpoint from the other side that they wanted to like not have this happen? That's the way it always was. Okay, um, and the industry was always previously controlled by the multinationals, um, and uh, the regulatory authorities had completely lost sight of uh, small scale producers, and so it wasn't just the regulatory authorities in terms of excise or. Uh, liquor control and licensing, but it's also to do with building code issues and so forth. Uh, just all factors. I guess there would have had to be a new like things like laws put in place to be able to, for this to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and if, I mean, for example, I, the day I walked into City Hall in Victoria to suggest that we would like to build a brew pub in Victoria, the individual, the counter of the planning department just said, oh, we don't allow those here. So I thanked her very much for her time and turned around and walked away. And back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. So I started pumping quarters into the payphone in the lobby at City Hall and started phoning people on council saying, what's up? Why not? And after a few hours on the phone, like what I essentially learned was that uh, the city uh, would entertain a well-founded proposal from a credible group of people. And when I asked, what's the problem here? Uh, nobody wants your pub in their backyard. So it was a NIMBY thing. And the advice I was given was, go find a neighborhood that doesn't exist and build your brew pub there. And the neighbors can move in around it and they won't complain to us. So there we are on the waterfront in Vic West because it was a downtrodden neighborhood on the wrong side of the bridge. And it was derelict industrial land all around us. I was going to ask about the location, what the significance of it was. Waterfront, south-facing, inner harbor. Because <laughs> that location, like eating out on the patio today, is just like, that's, that's insane. It's so nice. My, my, one of my first days on that property was um, in February in uh, 1983. And it was one of those glorious February days, much like today. And there was a little tiny balcony on the upper floor um, and I sat there and I could see race rocks and I went wouldn't that be cool to sit here and drink beer and watch the sailboats return on Swift Shore weekend hence the name Spinnakers 
So what was the original mission statement with Spinnakers when you were when you were launching it or opening it? Sorry, the what? The original mission statement. Make beer. Yeah. <laughs> Drink a beer. <laughs> Make beer. Um, we uh, very much wanted to create a public living room. Um, my partner was uh, very much into the concept of the English pub. I did not want us to recreate an English pub, uh, but wanted to do uh, a pub that had those kinds of qualities, but respected where we were on the West Coast, on the waterfront, um, and be current with, at that time was the mid-1980s. So, you know, hence south-facing terrace. No, nobody had patios before we did patio in Victoria. Uh, bars were hotel basements or back lots, windowless. Um, and so we fought through the regulations on all that kind of stuff and basically created a wall of windows facing the harbor. Um, and all of that was, that was breakthrough stuff at the time. And how did people react to that? How you did that? Um, the day we finally got our license, uh, the liquor inspector came in in the morning at 11. He interviewed us and deemed that we were suitable characters and that the place had all of the pieces in place that it what needed to test? have. What to was the test for that? Able to be opened. <laughs> and um, he then called back at two and said, hey, your license is ready if you guys want to come and pick it up, which shocked all of us. So... Um, John took off for the liquor store. Ray took off to the bank to get some money for a float. And <laughs> I tried to make sure all the lights were working and shit like that. And, and we opened at four o'clock. And again, without cell phones, we filled up immediately and we sold 1200 bucks that night. Hmm. And that was our worst day ever until we had a fire. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, so it was well received to the point and, and people were waiting for it. Um, people were waiting for the beers that we want to make. They're waiting for the room. Um, and I think they were kind of surprised by the kitchen. Um, and back in those days, uh, pubs and bars didn't have kitchens. They had hot dogs, a big meat thing going around on a <laughs> thing and bags of chips off the back bar. Yeah, because they didn't do food. for people that don't know, Spinnakers has been doing farm to table since the 80s, since like the, since you yeah, first since, opened. Since about 1990. Yeah. Oh, 90. Okay. Yeah. And like, there's, there's a lot of places that I had seen <clears throat> that, that failed in the 90s and then 2000s trying to do that. And for whatever reason, it didn't work. So it's amazing to me that Spinnakers for 30 years now has been doing that. And it's just, you, you figured something out. Um, yeah, and part of it is, is perhaps um, my architect background, and I am paranoid of liability. Um, and, and the best form of liability insurance is um, have a couple of pints of beer and have a substantial meal, and you're done. And it's on to the next place, and let's bring somebody else in and put them in that seat. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the beer making, Let's go back to the actual origin story of Spinnakers. How did it actually like become an idea and then actually become a thing? John Mitchell um, had been an advocate of um, trying to get better beer into British Columbia uh, for a number of years. John, born in Singapore, um, 
grew up in UK in hospitality and UK in France. Uh, he bartended at the Savoy. Um, he moved to Vancouver, uh, was one of the first bartenders at the Hotel Georgia when liquor licenses started to get passed out in the early 50s. <laughs> he became kind of resident bartender at the Sylvia um, on English Bay. And um, in the late 70s, he partnered into the Troller Pub in Horseshoe Bay. Um, and it was his frustration with the, the lack of quality beer um, had him haranguing uh, people in liquor control and licensing. And there was also this ongoing set of brewery strikes that became kind of the norm back in those days. Hmm. And so the breweries worker, Local 40, every other summer would go on strike for a new contract. And I think government just finally got frustrated. And with the advent of a coming oncoming strike, kind of threw it out to John and said, okay, you want to do this brewery, how quickly can you get it open? Uh, and so he scrambled uh, to put a brewery together, which went into an outbuilding on the dock at Sewell's Marina down the road from the Troller Pub in Horseshoe Bay. And he conscripted um, some support from a guy named Frank Appleton, who in, in, I think, 78 had written an article about homebrewing in Harrowsmith magazine. So John had read this article. He found the copy of it, went and found Frank um, up in the Kootenays. Frank was a disaffected Carlings brewer. Um, he, he quit in disgust over what they were doing and, and basically went, and hung out in the Kootenays. So John found him, and they threw together uh, what became the Horseshoe Bay Brewery, um, refashioned dairy equipment, um, suffered greatly in terms of the ability to manage quality control and consistency. So if you think about a new, a new beverage sector coming to life and you're challenged in terms of quality control and consistency, um, against uh, a marketplace that uh, is very, very good at making consistent product. It's a recipe for failure. So John, recognizing that he had a problem, having opened his brewery in June of 82, um, by September 82, was on his way to UK in search of better equipment. He returned uh, with uh, some ideas on equipment, and he had a suitcase full of beer. Um, and I, um, having found out about what John had done, uh, living in Vancouver at the time, uh, paid a little bit of attention to what he was doing. And then I, I came over to Victoria and, and did the rounds and looked at what would need to happen to see if we could maybe entice John to come to Victoria and, and build something from scratch. The eureka moment for me happened when we got into uh, a tasting of John's beers that he brought back. And it was a gathering at, at a place called the Pickled Onion, which was uh, a pub in uh, a liquor agent's <laughs> <say>. basement <laughs> uh, out in Dunbar area up by UBC. Um, and John had gathered together along with Fern DeMonte, who owned the place, um, a collection of half a dozen other characters who were 
uh, beer aficionados. And so um, along with um, some boards of pickles and cheese and a bunch of bread, uh, we set about drinking all of John's beer that night. Uh, <laughs> he had two bottles each of 14 different kinds of beer. Um, we drank them. These other guys had notebooks. They talked to each other. They scribbled notes. They challenged each other over what they thought was actually in the beers, all of which was completely foreign conversation to me. And then we got into half a dozen beers that were North American beers that one of the guys had brought in. And then we got into the homebrew that these people had brought in their 20-liter canisters and uh, served via a dispensing system at the bar. And two things became abundantly clear to me that night. First of all, here's this extraordinary range of flavors that were not available in our marketplace, sort of crossing the pond and going over to Europe or UK. We had no access to any of these kinds of flavors. And secondly, I thought the best beer that we drank that night was made by the home brewers. And that told me that we had the technology in the room that night to do this thing. That must have been a wild, like, sort of aha moment. And it was, yeah, it was absolutely an aha. It's like reach up and just turn the light bulb on. Yeah. And I set to work the next day on what became an 18-month process to make it happen. So that was the day where it all that sort of… That was the day. That was like the light bulb moment. Hmm. And so the building that you guys are in, did, was that, did you build that? No, there was a house there. Okay. So there was already a house there. And then you, have you just, how much have you added on to it? Uh, almost all of it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the main floor plate uh, between uh, where the staircase is that goes up and where the steps are that go down onto the lower part of the lower floor is the old main floor plate. Okay. There's um, a grotty basement that I just didn't. I just didn't have the jam to tell the planning department that we're going to bring in the D9 and just blow it away and start from scratch. I, I just thought a renovation would be much easier to pull off uh, politically. Um, and so that's what we did. Um, and then I was, from my travels, I was, I was particularly enamored with the design language of, there was a, a field house in Kuala Lumpur that I, I just like, wow, that, it was, to me, such a really cool building. And it was one of these big folded roof episodes. And, and so that's what I kind of wanted to do here, um, to take this roof and fold it over a much larger building than it looked like from the outside. Um, and again, there's politics in there. To, uh, we need to build this thing bigger than we're allowed to. Um, and we need to kind of hide the fact that it is um, and do it uh, in a very West Coast kind of feel. I do love the fact that you keep coming back to the fact that like we're on the West Coast. Yeah. And you're trying to be authentic to the West Coast yeah. with what you do. And I really appreciate that. Um, when we look at beer. Well, this- I think that's who we are. And, and I think it follows all the way through everything that we do, even through to today. Absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, today we're making gin that's a west coast london dry um and it's just we we live in an amazing place and and one of the best journeys for me has been able to watch southern vancouver island unfold as a food region um 
I didn't know it when we started doing it. I, I didn't know that we were artisan brewers until a few years later when we discovered the word artisan <laughs> to what we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the notion of running an artisan kitchen was so logical. Um, and then the agriculture sector on southern Vancouver Island kind of followed along with us as we discovered things that would grow well here in our sub-Mediterranean climate um, and allowed us on southern Vancouver Island to absolutely blossom as a food region, you know, to the point that slow food recognizes Cowichan as a slow city. Um, I went to Torino. I went to slow food to find out what this movement was all about. I spent a day. Went, yeah, this is what we do. <laughs> Let's go down to Pozzacano and hit the beach. Um, I, you know what we're doing is is was was just right. It was right for the time. It was right opportunity, and and I, we just had some amazing encounters with people who grow stuff for us. Um, it's community. It's connection. It's it's who we are. It's where we live. One of the big things I've learned through meeting you today is just how open you are to new ideas and questioning sort of, well, this is the way things might have been up till now. Or like, what if, what do you, if you do this differently? What does that look like? And I think that that's, that's pretty wild. And it's really cool to learn that, that, that Spinnaker is like that, that is coming from the top down. And it makes sense now seeing how much you guys do. And it's how receptive you are to new ideas. It's always been, for, I've been, it's been a couple of years now and it's always been that way, which has always been very nice. It's very encouraging to have, be able to have an idea, being able to think it out and pitch it and it be received and you know, be able to talk it out. And uh, Paul and everybody at Spinnakers has always been very, very good and very open-minded to new ideas and pushing the limit, if you will, to what we think is traditional and normal, which, which is great. Especially in the crap beer industry, where everything people are throwing everything they can into a beer, and from anything they can into a beer, really. So, which is a fun, hundred percent. And like we're sitting in the room right now, where a lot of beer is aging, and it's Paul. I think you said that there's a lot of tools here because when you start blending, there's a lot of possibilities to go on. Absolutely. When you start mixing stuff together, and when you are blending, what is I guess, is it just experience that you have to have to know that like, well, what if I blend that one with this thing? Or is it just, is it just like sort of guessing or? Um, it's, it's really up a lot, of, a lot on the palate. Um, and the big difference, everybody has a different palate. And that's one thing I've learned as a brewer. And, you know, like I, I picture what I would like to think of what I'm picturing, what I'm tasting, and you'll give it to somebody else and they'll have completely different uh, sensory to this. Um, we're, I'm, we're as a, in our brewery. We're very lucky to have uh, Leva Peters from Belgium, who's Ranny. Uh, works worked at a couple of breweries in Belgium there, and is a very very knowledgeable on our barrel program. So we trust her uh, palate quite a bit. And uh, when she goes through blending, she'll look for things of uh, taking the better barrel, like the best product of the barrel, and blend it with this to get more of a maybe more of a tannin note, more of a fruit note, or a souring so it's kind of i believe it's she's picturing where she wants this end flavor profile to be and or she's just kind of saying i like this is this what people will like yeah yeah hopefully yeah well i would say it's usually the case probably yeah yeah it's we haven't gotten too much for that bad new rap yet so (laughs) so when we look at the process of actually um of actually making beer oh yeah (laughs) 
We can take a break for a second. Looking for no, just looking for a bottle opener. And so what's what's that one? Uh, this is a good example of uh, uh, Leva's work. This is our framboise, and so this is a um, a red a red a traditional red uh, ale uh, lambic style. So it's a very Belgian. Very, I'm just rambling at this point. <laughs> uh, so it's a very traditional style of beer uh, where it is a, a red ale that is put into a barrel to be soured through. Uh, over over time, um, but then blended in with uh, fresh raspberries, and so it'll it'll do its souring process in the barrel, picking up those flavors, and then add it on. Like today, we were talking about the grapes that she added into a barrel. Um, she adds hundreds of pounds of raspberries into the barrels to absorb that flavor, kick up another type of fermentation, and uh, go for that. Uh, so this one is one that I think she's quite good at, and has been doing for a couple of years now, and it's one that we continually do. So. Uh, reach over here. I'll pour you a little. Here, I'll clean out my glass here. Okay, and so like trying this one, uh, what are you what are you looking for when you're trying this to really pick up and sort of appreciate it? I, I, I what I look for in a framboise, and just what I what I like about it is it's um, it's going to have a complex flavor, but a very fresh brightness to it too from those raspberries. It's something that you could sit and kind of chew on, if you will, but also have on a hot summer day at the same time as there's this very fresh uh, raspberry kick to it. Definitely wow. on the nose. Lots of like almost like a jam. Uh, very, very. 100% jam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 100%. And having that quite tart and dry finish, it's a, it's very refreshing and uh, makes you want to have, have another sip of it. 100%. When, how long has that been out? Um, I believe that, oh, this one's been out. We've had, we've done a m couple runs of this one. Okay. Um, but usually for that one's about a, a year and a half to make, uh, cause it'll sit in a barrel for about a year and then about six to eight months on, on the raspberries after that. So when you like, right before you put it in the barrel, what, what's the difference in the flavor profile of that versus what we're having like right now? How does it change over time? Um, you'll still have that very, like that tart, the, the sour, that kind of dryness, but, uh, that, Obviously, that big jam raspberry notes on the on the nose and at the back end, kind of almost juiciness will are coming from the raspberries for sure. And that's not like a blending in; they're just resting on those. But we say resting; we're just sitting in the barrel with them and ab absorbing it. Yeah. And with the process of making beer, like the very first step of the whole thing is is the uh, um, it was the barley, right? Yeah. So in Spinnakers, there's that little machinery upstairs there or whatever the mill upstairs yeah which like that's the start of all the beers that come out of spinnakers and that was like the wildest thing to me that that piece of machinery that's like in a publicly accessible area is like the start of everything yeah and that's that's pretty wild that, like that same exact piece of machinery has been all these years has been doing everything i was thinking about it the other day i was as i was milling putting some in um today we brewed uh the seven thousand six hundred and eighteenth brew that at spinnakers has, has done do you have a logbook of like what each one is? Absolutely. Legally, yes. Yeah. Oh, you have to. <laughs> if the government is listening, yes, we have every one of those on there. Yes. Oh, that's cool. You you want to you want to we have to do that legally, but we all want you want to do that as a brewer uh, to have notes on to go back on and see like oh there's temperature change here, we did something different here, so you can go back to refer oh this why does this beer taste really good or why does this beer taste really bad? We can trace it back to those steps along the way. So you can actually so the whole the whole process is documented. Yeah. So you can go back and like if the last rendition was like technically your or you feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. 
and it, and it changes as it goes, but it's kind of fun. I was looking through previous logs uh, a couple months back and just going back is like, see how far back I could trace. And then it's really neat to see. Um, we, there's a little joke that calls Spinnaker's Brewers University. There's uh, There's been a lot of really great brewers have come, started here and come and gone, gone on to create and do bigger things. Matt Phillips being one of the most recognizable names out of that. Um, so it's kind of cool. And like John Mitchell, of course, the, the God, one of the godfathers of grain, we call it. But, and going back and, and after, after John, it was Brad McQuay who went on to set up Newland Systems and yeah. became like the premier manufacturer of craft brewing and distilling equipment in North America. Wow. Yeah. And most recently, Matt Westpatrick from uh, Whistlebuoy. He was, he'd started at Spinnaker's with us and then opened up that one down there and they're killing it. Yeah, it's, they're doing great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. They have the, great uh, stuff. the little, the food truck, the Los... I forget the the second name. Yeah, the but, the, the Lampinata place. There. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those things are so good. <laughs> Dead, deadly, deadly. <laughs> but yeah, so it's really cool. And kind of going back to those notes, and then you go back and you see the lineage, the the hair, like the history that goes into these things, and also very fun just to be like today. I brewed a nut brown. It's the same recipe from thirty six years ago that John Mitchell came up. Seeing how many other people have done that, and and going kind of coming back to the mill, it's really fun after uh, seventy six hundred brews. You can average, say, maybe 100 to 200 kilograms of grain goes into a brew for our system. Mm-hmm. You can only imagine how much weight has gone through that mill over 7,600 brews. <laughs> like, it seems that mill could talk <laughs> for sure. 100%. And it's never broken down. Never. Never had a problem <laughs> with it. It's made a lot of noises. It's made a lot of squeaky noises for sure. That was sure, the first but... question I had. Is this thing ever broken down? Because it's like it's just a workhorse. Yeah. Had a few nuts and bolts through it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of zap straps, but it's still there. It's <laughs> what's what's the coolest part about brewing beer in your guys' opinion? Drinking it. Yeah. 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 That's being able to being a beer fan, being able to make a beer that I I, I want to drink. Um also something I've learned as a brewer brewer in the past couple of years is the Picturing a flavor. I don't know how you describe that or envisioning. Have it, yeah, envisioning a flavor of something. It's like trying to pick up, see a color you haven't seen, but then knowing the steps to try and get that and having that problem solving. And and then you do achieve, may or may not, but hopefully you do achieve this goal. And then you have something beautiful Yeah, that I can get silly with my friends with. So it's pretty, <laughs> which is quite, quite nice. Are there any common misconceptions about beer that you would like to sort of comment on like one one for me is should there be a, a um an expectation of judgment on the flavor based on the color because i feel like you can't like no not yeah, any, you can't not anymore especially yeah. yeah it's like it's that classic uh oh i don't like guinness it's so heavy but yeah. for guinness is an incredibly light beer uh overall but it's that black thick black perception that people are oh, that must be like molasses but at 4.2 percent it's an incredibly light beer um yeah i think one of the most fun things is um for those who say i don't like beer yeah it's simply you haven't found the beer that you like yet um Absolutely. so can i take you down some flavor pathway and find your style I feel like that's the case with a lot of things. Yeah. People just say a, a blanket statement, but for someone that actually knows what it, what what that thing is, it's kind of hard to just like throw it all under the same Absolutely. umbrella. And it kind of ties back into that. I don't like hops. I don't like like and especially like going back. Like of course through the the generations of IPA, they've 
went from exploring the flavor to being bitter bombs that would, you know, your mouth would suck inwards after you drank it to suffer these hazies and these New England IPAs are coming out and totally, they're not bitter, but they're using just as much or more hops than you would use in a very bitter IPA, but just the different technique of it. And you're achieving these crazy flavors and smells and lots of tropical flavors, yeah, tropical influences, which are being bred into hops that were not there 20 years ago, yeah. weren't really there 10 years ago. Um, it looks like there's one one of the one of the, the hot new hops that people are using are like a sabro hop and it's from it's a mexican based hop there and it's a whole and they're creating their whole new uh flavors and uh strains down there which bringing up totally different uses usages for brewers and so when you are doing when you are going to brew something where do the ideas come from when you you're setting out to be like okay i want to make this <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's name of the beer and <laughs> trying to create a beer for something funny, but, uh, it's also just depending on season, um, what ingredients you have available, uh, i.e. fruits and what's growing around at the time. Um, and I guess everything, does everything need to be treated differently in the process depending on what you're putting in? Yeah. Or is it generally like the same kind of thing or, or do you have to do like, is there a pretty big range of how you treat stuff? Uh, it's, and that's kind of goes back to that thing where we we're talking about the, was it the Reichstag log? I forget the name, how you pronounce that in German, but it's, you have these four ingredients and it's, and quite like the mixing board we're sitting in front of us, it's how you manipulate them and you push up on this end, you raise this temperature at this time, it's going to make a, a flavor here. But if you lower your temperature at this time and let it sit longer here, it's going to make a different compound there. So using these four very basic ingredients and manipulating them and it takes a thousand matches mashes to understand that and then you just kind of tweak and play it's very much like a music if you will Yeah, you're absolutely composing yeah it's just kind of like and it's fun which what i always find is fun as a brewer and like we're doing these we're sitting in this barrel room is what i do uh, when i'm mashing in will make the, the slightest effect will make an effect two years down the road and i can't really I can't really taste it until then to find out, but that's that goes back to that passion and due diligence of being very mindful of every little step along the way, and that's what makes great craft beer. And I guess over time, you kind of get a feel for if you do do this little tiny tweak at one point, it's going to produce this thing at the end, and I want that thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just learning how you tweak the the grain, the water, the the hops, the the yeast. It's each one of them is such a large playground to be going through and manipulating so it's fun because you'll you'll spend all this time doing okay i'm gonna make this pseudo amber ale and then you plan it all out and then oh didn't really get to where i want so you go back to this goes back to those being documenting all those brew notes and okay so what do we do well, maybe next time i'll ferment at a little higher temperature to get more fruit flavor out of it or esters out of it and kind of just manipulating and like I said, it takes about a thousand mashes to really fully understand to understand those and, and getting through and how you get to taste that flavor that you envision. And yeah. so the mashing, that's stage two? That's number one. That's, oh, number, that's the first one. Right after that mill, it goes in and that was that big uh, mash tun we were looking at with the, yeah. the grated bottom. Okay. Yeah. And that's all very temperature driven. And like I said, those little effects that you do there echo for years after, which is really kind of fun. And when with beer, what's the proper way to pour it? Depends on the beer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, so it depends on the beer. Absolutely. Beers, absolutely. 
Uh, every beer will have a different. Yeah. So you take you take this beer we're drinking right now. Yeah. And it's been in this bottle for a while. It was bottle conditioned. So that means that there was a fermentation in the bottle. So that means that there's yeast has settled to the bottom. So you want to pour it and not pour the yeast in unless you actually want to taste the yeast. So this is one that's going to be poured carefully, slowly. And as you move from glass to glass, you don't really want to slosh it back down again because you're just going to mix up the yeast. So that's kind of like really sensitive at that end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, you've got a beer that's nitro. I was going to ask about and nitro. So you just want to yeah. turn that bottle upside down and just let it flow. Yeah. Because that way you're going to get the kind of cascade that you want. And, you know, the whole nitro thing is, is like a Guinness invention uh, to... God bless them for that. Uh, <laughs> resemble um, a perfectly conditioned, cask-conditioned beer. Um, and so, you know, cask beer is in small barrels and there's some little ones over there about the size of what a normal cask is. And the beers are secondary fermented inside the cask. So the carbonation is much finer. It's much smoother um, with an opportunity to put um, some dry hopping on it at the finish. And, and typically these are either dispensed by gravity, that is open the tap and let it flow into your glass, or by hand pump beer engine off of the bar. And either way, what you want to try to create is a circumstance where you get this nice fat head that sits up on top of the beer. Um, and I was saying earlier that we've got some uh, bottle fermented IPAs and ESBs coming. And again, it's the same kind of thing. We're trying to get that fat head that just follows all the way down and diminishes until you get to the bottom. And then with each sip, it's going to leave a lace line around the glass. So you can actually count the number of times that you put it up to your mouth. Oh. To me, that is a well-conditioned beer. That's the, that's the Guinness. And so, you know, you're playing with pouring depending upon what's in there. And so there if it's you... just like an industrial lager, it's like, go for it. And you said, so those IPA and what was the other kind that you said? ESB. Yeah. So what is, what is that? Extra special bitter. Okay. Uh, yeah. Which is classic English pub beer. Your classic. Um, yeah. And our case, it's, we named it after John Mitchell. Um, and it's a beer that we've been making since the day we served our first beer. Um, and it's just, we're kind of known for it. Yeah. It's kind of one of our, like, it's, I personally think one of the best pull casts outside of England that's very, very traditional, just delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And, we were, we were in, in uh, London last fall. Uh, and I'm sorry, but I don't mean to disparage, but like, I, we, we were really disappointed in a lot of the cask beers that we found there. They're just, I, I, you know, I, the the resurgence of of brewing and craft brewing in North America has resulted in um, a large body of people here who brew, who are passionate, um, and who uh, work very very hard to make great beer. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of UK is still in decline, um, although the craft sector is rebounding there they're just behind us uh, and you know really 
the Pacific Northwest is the epicenter of craft brewing internationally. So many people look to the Pacific Northwest. Really? So it's not just like North America. It's like all over. They look, they look to here. Absolutely. Pacific Northwest is where it began. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And with nitro, you guys have nitro beers? Uh, we're not, not serving one at the moment, yeah, not but we, we do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I had one up at, uh, I think, Whitesales up in Nanaimo. Mm -hmm. They had, I forget what the name of it. It's red something. And then you can only get it there. This was before COVID, but it, it was, you can only get it there. They didn't sell it in, in the stores or whatever. And it was, yeah, it was so smooth. Yeah. It was a whole different experience. And that's yeah. the, that's the kind of actually kind of goes back to you, what you're saying of the, uh, what's a common misconception in yeah. beer. And it's like having a head on a beer is a very good thing to have on there. Like it, don't be scared to pour yourself a solid head. And that's, that's with the nitro just making. Is there an optimal level for the, like the size of the head? Uh, it depends on the beer again. Yeah. But so we say two fingers to yeah. the top of the glass. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's, you want that on there and not trying to like patronize anything, but the, that head is keeping your carbonation in. It's uh, shooting aromas into your nose as you're bringing it up to your nose. It's very, it's very important. And going back to our brewers, yet again, going back to that mash, another thing, we do steps to in, envisioning and, and so that does exactly what we want it to do. So heads are very important. Head of head is very important on beer. That's number one. And like nitro being the one where it's such small bubbles gives it that incredibly smooth, creamy texture because they're not just exploding right away. And what about temperature? Are all beers best served at a certain temperature or does it vary between beers or how does Very that work? Between beers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh I mean again, it's a function of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Uh so um when beer is very, very cold uh, it is able to hold a lot more CO2 in suspension. So carbonated beers want to be colder. And as you back off the carbonation and allow the beers to be served at a bit warmer temperature, you're going to get much more of the flavors in the body of the beer come through, the flavors of the malt or the flavors of the adjuncts. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we were to take this flambois and, and chill it down ice cold, you'd lose most of the flavors and it would seem flat. Hence like one to be, I really like this stuff, by the way. Oh, it's ridiculous. I, I, yeah, it's delicious. I, it reminds me of like kombucha. Oh yeah. Cause I drink a lot of kombucha. And yeah. This I can is, see that. yeah it, it, this is incredible. This is maybe my favorite beer I've ever had. Oh, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. I'd leave a, make, leave a very happy. Stick around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought on that one. Uh, <laughs> Flattering. Oh, saying he, yeah, and to be unnamed, incredibly large brewery that um, prides himself on, like, showing them the Blue Mountains and how cold their beer is, it's so you don't taste it. And that's the whole point. The cold of the beer is freezing your taste buds as it's going down, so you're not tasting there, where a lot of craft beers, especially stouts and stuff, we want to serve a little bit warmer. So you're getting those, almost like a red wine type effect where you're, getting all those flavors and showing those different complex notes. And there's also time and place. Oh, absolutely. So as we, you know, head into, into winter, uh, it's nice to be able to drink your beer out of a goblet, get your hand underneath it, warm it up, get those flavors to come off and appreciate it in the same way that one would swirl a glass of red wine. Mm. And it goes through a lot of the same kinds of processes. Conversely, as you head into spring and summer uh, and you like, are, are looking for a thirst quencher, 
you maybe don't want those big heavy flavors. You want something that's cold, carbonated, um, crispy beers that you can uh, pound. Um, what we call crushable, because <laughs> you pound it and crush the can. Yeah. <laughs> Last year, I went to a, a dinner at Lowbrunner Farm, and you guys made a blueberry apricot sour. Oh, which was it was a one-off. Like this is the only one that was produced, and that's I it. made a cask for Andrew on that one. Yes, I that's remember right. That. Yeah, so I, I I did get to try that. I, I this is going again, apologizing to Andrew on that one because that thing made quite the mess when he first tapped into it. I it, wish I had a video of that. <laughs> I don't think there's video of it. I think there might be a photo. I think there's a photo floating around of it. But he, so yeah, I was there for that. I did a sour a tart a tart ale and then just loaded it with blueberries and just blew it everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it was delicious apparently, yeah. but it you oh, know it was delicious. Smurfed yeah, I, everybody. I, I did the same thing <laughs> um, at the Victoria Conference Center with uh, a cask of stout once and. Uh, managed to get it onto the wall of the upper floor by the mezzanine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before this most recent uh, paint job at Spinnaker's, I had a few what I call signatures on the ceiling from ta- casks being tapped and hitting the roof and <laughs> shooting up. Leave some remnants. Yeah. How often do you guys do sort of that one-off event or like a, just a flavor for one thing and that's it? Is that very often? Uh, it depends on the event. Obviously, a lot less events this this year, uh, yeah, going on. But uh, especially with casks and stuff, that we we would do quite a bit of different things, and um, I get a lot of room to play, which is quite fun. So we get to do small one-off matches, one-off barrels, one-off casks, and and so do, do people just approach you like, hey, we got an event. Would you guys be able to do something for this thing? Yeah, yeah, we do usually, yeah. And Andrew, Andrew is a good friend of mine, so it was really fun to be able to be part of that, too, on that side. So. Yeah, like what was the inspiration for that flavor? How did that come about? Uh, blueberry season. I had I just made this really nice um, tart mosaic ale, and I had a, a beautiful bunch of fresh blueberries that I had just blended down and just thought that was a perfect match. just seemed right. Yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and how many, how many different flavors of beer has Spinnaker's done over the years? Do you know? I, it's yeah <laughs> I know you, so you said like seven thousand something hundred seventy six hundred eighteen brews uh are brews doing 19 tonight but uh i couldn't even imagine can't even think I, i've been there six years and i've pulled out a whole bunch but like i said there's yeah that's it would be in the two three hundred range yeah oh easy. wow for sure easy yeah. and how many at a time so you said there's space to have nine going at the place right now fermenting but we usually have probably have 20 taps on each floor yeah um, on the main towers, um, and is then that, on the lower floor, in addition to the twenty, we've got what another six, and on the upper floor, another nine or yeah. ten. Oh wow! So, uh, so yeah. we, we mix. <laughs> our, our my deal is, I I want to see us always have um, the ability to have a flight, which is four beers in our case of classics. Uh, so that's kind of the old school stuff. Um, I want to have a flight of uh, essentially hoppy stuff, uh, like IPAs and things like that. Uh, I want to see a flight of seasonals. I want to see a flight of barrels and sours. Um, And I want to see a flight of ciders. Um, And again, it comes back to when you walk into a bar and there's all of these choices. How do you decide? Well, let's start to narrow your focus a little bit. So you're like, 
classic stuff? Do you like hoppy stuff? Do you want to try some seasonal inspirations? Do you want to try some sours? Do you want to try some ciders? Take your pick. Um, and then we'll get you into four in each of those <laughs> kinds of categories. And yeah. ultimately, you can find the beer that you actually want to sit down and drink. And so at some places, you mentioned for you guys, it's four for a flight. Yeah. Do other places do different amounts? Some do five. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Depending I've only on, seen four. So Depending yeah. on the board. <laughs> Whatever yeah. board they've made. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I think four. So is, we do kind of four or five ounce yeah, pours, so you, which is the equivalent of a pint. And that we can get away with. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You actually just gave me a flashback to Japan where Anton, the guy that I was with, my buddy, he, uh, he got a flight of sake, but I think there was 20, 20 little things of so- <laughs> 20 different sakes at this one place. And like, uh, it's not a flight. That's a nosedive. Yeah. It, was, <laughs> it was a lot. When I, when I went to school in, in Kyoto, um, one of the, one of the profs that I had was, um, let's be honest, he was an alcoholic and, uh, we used to have some of our sessions in a little sake brewery bar. And this was a bar that seated seven people. So we all got to get in there at once. And, um, you know, it, it was winter. I went, I went to Kyoto um, directly from Hawaii and I did not have enough clothes. Uh, I did not anticipate cold. What time of year was this? This was January, February, March. Oh no. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, being, being warm in Japan is often a state of mind and, so we, we would huddle at the sake bar, um, which had, but there would be what, about five or seven ounce pours and the meniscus of the sake in the glass absolutely stood up proud <laughs> over the top of the glass. So there was no way that you're going to lift this to your mouth. So the only way to get into it was to wrap your hands around the glass and lower your face down instead of sucking it. <laughs> and this was um, this is one of the most enlightening experiences for me um, in just a whole different way of approaching what we do. Um, and so this is before we did the pub uh, when I was going to school, um, and it was complete pushback on industrialized. It was really cool. It was fun to see, and the characters that support these joints are always amusing and actually mentioning sake again that you you did remind me that a lot of people that's one thing where people say oh i don't like sake it's 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 amazing no that seems to be like universal like the majority of people when i ask them here they all say they don't like it and now that i've got to experience some really interesting stuff i'm like well no that i think if you had that one yeah yeah, um, absolutely and there's different stuff there's like the the non-pasteurized sake and stuff you can get over there which is that milky one yeah yeah radically different yeah absolutely beautiful (laughs) so yeah i was going to ask about aged beer that was one thing coming into this i was going to ask about and i and here we are sitting in this room where you have stuff that ages for different periods of time what's what's like the longest aged beer that you guys have done or are doing would you say Uh, like the framboise here is about 18 months usually on like as as a guideline for us um i think there's there's as you can see there's about 180 more yeah, in I, here i, I, I kind of think and it's kind of like 18 24 months it's yeah kinda yeah 24 like months optimum. Top, yeah um and after that um 
depending upon yeast strains and so forth, you tend to get some yeast autolysis where the, the yeast starts to break down after a while. Oh, really? Um, so it, unlike, um, say, aging uh, red wines where uh, they're racked off and racked off and racked off and there's like absolutely no yeast in there, um, these are more perhaps comparable to method champenois where, um, again, they go through processes to, uh, to turn the bottles and they'll pop the cork and they'll pull the product off. And so it's that yeast autolysis is what you're trying to get rid of. So there's kind of two enemies. There's oxidation and yeast autolysis. Yeah. And over time, um, they'll both try and come back and get you. So the bottle fermentation ideally eats up all the oxygen, so that's not going to be a problem. But unless we were to uh, cap, untap these and decant them um, and then try to go for a longer period of time, I, I think that's kind of a limit. There's also, so do you, do you within, have to- within this, that, that kind of time frame, there's still a freshness that's there. And I, over over a longer period of time, that freshness is going to go away. Mm-hmm. So i've I've got I've got some beers that came from Thomas Hardy that are you know like kind of twenty thirty years old, and I'm just not drunk enough to drink them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, why why drink bad beer when there's so much good beer to be had? Yeah. And, and Thomas Hardy's were always talked about as these things that you could age out for long periods of time. I just don't think they get any better. And so each beer, though, is different the amount of time that you'd want to be aging it for. Oh, for sure. It depends, yeah. it depends on the alcohol level, the, yeah. the hoppiness and so forth, all these things that are built into it and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, that's um, a big And one. some beers, it really just like, you know, like a... a a Hefeweizen or something like that. You want all that yeast in suspension and it's going to settle out in a month. So you want to drink it in two weeks. A good example is we have a couple, there's one on at the pub right now. Um, our 7,000, 7,000 blah, 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 um, was done as a wild ferment. We just brewed the beer, put it in barrels and left it in our barrel room to see where it would go. Um, and after about a year and a half, uh, of just kind of playing and uh, Leva always coming in and tasting and we're going through, we found like this beer is just ready. It's just whatever this one single barrel is, is absolutely beautiful and bright and fresh and amazing. And then, so that kind of plays play into it too, where you're just like, no, this is, this is the one right now. We should, we should be drinking this. People should be drinking this. Let's get, get it going. And so knowing that something is ready, is that subjective? Like yeah. you're basically getting what you're looking for and you're like, it's there now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this this room is her playground, uh, and when she says this beer is ready to go, it's like, yep, it's ready to go. Time yep, to go. Put it, yeah. yeah, let's get yeah. it going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And looking at um, crap breweries over the years, how have those how or how have they changed enormously? Yeah. Um, so um <clears throat> there are well, it, yeah some have enormously and and then there are more coming in um that are starting where other ones launched from and and have gone off on tangents from hmm. so an initial big change is on the equipment side and so the equipment today is just so superior to what it was 35 years ago 
Um, people, a lot of people who have worked in our brewery have created all these lists of how we need to get rid of all this broken down old equipment and buy like a keen new brewery. And I've always pushed back on it. I think that, that, uh, you're talking about a bunch of stainless stuff. You're talking about some technology. And I think that, um, in terms of the brewing process, the mechanics, yeah, there's other stuff that's much more push button and so forth, but it's just not as hands on the material. You're not picking the stuff up. You're not appreciating as much like the exact grind that you've got on the barley. You're not appreciating as much um the uh, the resins and the aromas that you're getting out of the whole leaf hops because you're ripping open bags that are foil bags that are nitro sealed and you're just like pouring them down the chute hmm. um and so a lot of craft breweries are taking industrial technology and scaling it down to their scale um there's also the need for uh breweries to keep up with production and and so we're bringing things like centrifuges into the equation to take what comes out of the process um, and just spin it and get all the particles out so you can package it tomorrow instead of letting it run through a normal aging process and so i think what really is important is that there are people playing at both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between and that we as consumers have the opportunity to go around and try all this stuff. So one of the great things that's going on now is that there is a much greater public awareness of craft beer. Um, government appreciates the benefits of craft beer in terms of the employment that's created, in terms of the investment that's created, and how it's good for the economy. And so you end up with entities today like Destination BC, who are supporting something like the BC Ale Trail, and are contributing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to take craft beer to market, and create itineraries, um, and ways for people to tour the province, and cool things to go and see while you're going from beer stop to beer stop to beer stop and trying out what all of these interesting, crazy characters choose to bring to market for us. And that's, I think, where the real fun is, is being able to go to the source, see how they do it, taste how they do it, check out the neighborhood, <laughs> and enjoy some more of our province during these COVID times. It's amazing what you can find in certain places too. Yeah. Because we, we found a German brewery in Japan. I, I forget what city or what, if it, it was. It was, I think it was by Mount Fuji. But there's a guy there, a German guy, making German beer. And like, I mean, Anton was in love with it. He just, he Living wanted to, dream, I think he would have loved to have just stayed there for like two days straight and talked to that guy. Because, <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing to see. You just get like someone who's doing their thing. And it's just, it's, it might not like necessarily be what you'd expect from that place, but then it, it has an influence from where, the, where it's being done. Absolutely. And when you are, or I imagine when, like, let's say you did replace all the machinery, got new stuff, the beer would lose some character, would it not? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. It'd be different. Like, yeah. Yeah. It would, it'd it would be different. Be different. It's our, the beer we make at Spinnakers is very uh, handcrafted. So like there are a lot of lines and <laughs> I like to say a shitty carpenter blames his tools. You know what I mean? And like 
there's nothing we can't do with this older system that's something it's just a different technique, maybe just not the same application as these new systems would do. So is this a case of where like, if you got the new system, it might save time, but you'd be losing out on what makes it unique and what makes it like spinnakers? Yeah, I would save time because we would have a larger <laughs> system. So yeah. we would employ less people and larger um, batches at once. Yeah. It'd be very different. It takes the same amount of time to make one liter of beer as it takes 20,000. So you can kind of see where that goes. But like I said, these are very handcrafted. Yeah, very yeah. handcrafted brews. That's in where I think we're. There's not a lot of breweries. We use a whole leaf uh, hops, which is not very common anymore, but I think has its large advantages to it. And and so, what does that mean? Uh, most of the hops that you receive in that now are like pelletized. So they go made basically look like rabbit food. Um, but we use a a whole leaf, a very traditional old old way of. So which is a lot more work. It's harder to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the hops deteriorate substantially over time, um, and so the same hop put into a beer six months later is going to be a fraction of the aromats, uh, the bittering units, the flavor compounds as it was when it was fresh. Yeah. Uh, so if you're trying to make the same thing throughout the year, you have to adjust the recipes. So in a more industrial process where it's all backpack pelletized, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. So you're not as dialed into the flavors that you're creating as time goes on. So another level of complexity yeah. is added. Yeah. It's but more I guess, work. But at that point too, does that allow you then to be able to have another tool you can use to make it taste different? Oh, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can amp it like, up. like, are there reasons why you would use maybe some that have been aged a little bit and not use them when they're super, super fresh? Or do you always want to uh, use it when it's fresh? Sour, most sour beers uh, like having aged hops in them. Uh, okay. Uh, ones that you know you're going to, because you're going to be losing. The big part of the hops is that, like, those aromatics and uh, the, the bitterness, but that degrades over time. So if you have a, a beer that, like, you wouldn't want this frambois very bitter it's it would, wouldn't match at all so we use but at aged hops i've lost that kind of potency but still have a very nice kind of different flavor to them so yeah there is both on the, the game like hazy ipas it's all about the freshest you can get the freshest hop and put in and drank in right away where some of these wheat sours or sorry sour barrel sours um take time and you I want that little more funkiness to it of a aged hop that's cool yeah, And Spinnakers does so much stuff that I'm wondering if I could mention some of the things that they do. And Paul, if you'd sort of speak on the different, different aspects. It's so like the vinegar. How did the vinegar come, become to be? Uh, I was uh, getting beat up at home uh, for not taking the empties back. And we have a stone house in Oak Bay and we have a, this little cellar in the basement where you get to put the empties and they were out of sight out of mind until the word came that i needed to get rid of them <laughs> and so as i was bending down to pick up these stacks of uh bombers uh i got this waft of vinegar came off of and, and as always curiosity got the better of me and so i went diving into the box to try to find out where this vinegar smell was coming from and it was essentially half a bottle of hefeweizen that somebody sometime didn't drink uh, which naturally turned to vinegar with the aid of the fruit flies in my basement 
And so um, I tasted it and I thought it was absolutely delicious. And I set about trying to figure out how to make this stuff. And I came uh, in conversation with a guy named Jim Pryor. Uh, Jim is um, a guy who lives in Victoria. His wife, uh, Hillary, is a renowned filmmaker. And Jim worked for Bass in UK. He was a brewer for Bass. And I think he and a couple of his buddies uh, bought up Ruddles County and uh, brought it back to life and sold it off and made enough money for Jim to retire on. So Jim used to come in and hang out in our brewery all the time. And, and he was uh, particularly helpful in uh, coaching Lon Liddell, who was one of our brewers who now brews at a, at a brew pub in a brewery in, in Ottawa. Um, and Jim was having the same problem at home as I was, that he was making vinegar from beer in his basement and his wife was <laughs> equally unhappy with the volume of fruit flies in the house. Um, and so Jim had the technology and we were waiting to uh, build what became the, the new front entrance, uh, the provisions retail area for check-in, check-out for guest houses and stuff. And I was waiting on a permit because the design panel in Victoria rejected my drawings because they felt the building was unbalanced and the contractor was complaining because uh, he wanted to work and he'd saved the time. And I said, well, hey, come here with me. I, I had done up this drawing for a little vinegar brewery and I was going to put it in the back corner of the parking lot, but the city told me that um, having a vinegar brewery um, in a essentially restaurant was uh, not considered uh, an allowable use, um, and therefore we weren't allowed to do this. So we went up the street behind one of our guest houses, and they banged it in the backyard of there for me. And so um, then we set up what uh, Anita Stewart, who's the queen of Canadian cuisine, and she's a um, uh, food laureate at Guelph University, she calls it my contraption. <laughs> and so it's uh, a series of Grundy tanks that we pulled out of the basement that we fitted with uh, a couple of uh, kegs um, on top of that and then put a couple of um, condensing units on top of that little perlock glycol system in there. And so we're able to chill the condensers and we put uh, beer into the Grundy tank and we recirculate it and drop it in at the top of the keg where it falls through this uh, medium of bacteria, the, um, uh, the bacteria that's, that's used for making vinegars, um, acetobacter bacteria. So the bacteria eats the alcohol and gives off acetic acid, which is what vinegar is as a byproduct. So what we've done is we've created a, a process that's very parallel to what happens in the brewery where we take grain and we mash it and we create sweet wort which is full of sugar and we feed it to a bunch of uh, yeast the yeast consumes the sugar and gives off alcohol well in this other process we're doing exactly the same thing feeding um, alcohol to acetobacter bacteria in both cases we're trying to manage healthy happy colonies of yeast and bacteria that if we make them happy and feed them good stuff, they create cool stuff for us. And that's how we make vinegar. So as opposed to 
Hines or Grantham's or whoever who will use white grain distilled alcohol, uh, we are actually using beer with flavor. So the big guys are going to take their white vinegar and then they're going to color and flavor it with caramelized sugars and stuff to make malt vinegar. That is like what we do from scratch. And do you guys ever do a vinegar based on one of the beers? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah. like, it's like this is this, is this but it's this, vinegar. This stout yeah. vinegar, the IPA, the happy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So how many different vinegars are there? Uh, right now, we're, we're sort of focusing on, on three. We're doing an IPA. We're doing uh, like a, a black malt, which is kind of like a stout or a black lager. And we do the classic, which is um, our house, which is essentially Scottish ale. And is there one that works better as a base for vinegar, or, or can you do it with anything? Well, it depends what the vinegar is being used as a base for. So if the if the vinegar is being used as a base for making soups and sauces and stuff like that, Scottish ale. If you're looking for something to splash on spring greens, IPA. If you want to splash something on ice cream, stout. I feel like vinegar could be another thing that people are like, yeah, I don't like that. Drinking vinegars. Oh, that's a big that's So delicious. the drinking vinegar thing, I, I've, I've actually tried some yeah. of that, and it's amazing. It's it lovely. Is. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like just a put a little cider vinegar? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we make cider vinegars as well. Pear cider and apple cider vinegar. What, what don't you guys do? Because, I mean, you got the mineral water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how did, how did the mineral water come to be? We don't make gasoline yet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's- how did the mineral water come to be? <laughs> um, we we, we <laughs> kept having these fundraisers out at Souk. We have a property on Souk River, uh, just below the potholes. And there was a campaign going on uh, to save the Souk potholes. We had heard that. Uh, so this, this unfortunate guy, Albert Ewan, developed uh the area upriver from us. And he had these magnificent dreams, which... I, having spent some time in Japan, understood what he was trying to accomplish. Um, but he ultimately, he ran out of money. Um, and uh, we had heard that there was a gravel extractor that was looking to buy the property. And we were able to um, bring the Land Conservancy in on it. And we held a couple of fundraisers at our place to um, help them uh, create awareness. And ultimately, uh, one of them, um, a check arrived that um, enabled the purchase, which was pretty cool. But we were drawing our water out of the river. And when you have 200 people show up for barbecue and you're pulling your water out of the river, I went, we have a problem. Uh, we, should, we should not be doing this. So I phoned up these guys in, in Glad Lake who were uh, well drillers. And I said, I have this property on Sucre River Road that I'm, I'm hoping you might go out and have a look at and, um, you know, give me a, let me know what I need to do. I, I think we need to put in a well. And I have no idea where it came from, but I said at the same time, and I'm wondering if maybe we could put one in in town too. And the guy jumped all over it. He said, yeah, that's okay. there's lots of water in town. I'll tell you what, I'll check out your place at Souk. And I'll come and see you tomorrow. So he arrived the next morning. And he said, yeah, soup's no problem. Where do you want the hole here? And I said, well, don't you have to, like, do this witching thing? 
don't you have to have this fork and like you walk around and they said, yeah, you can throw money over your shoulder or we could just throw a hole. What do you want? Like, we know there's <laughs> water down there. So uh, I said, so this is going to make a mess. And he went, yep. And so I said, so uh, maybe if you put it over here, you get your truck in the corner and it wouldn't be so disruptive. So he came back, um, and I, I thought they were going to come back the next day or a couple of weeks later. He came back about an hour and a half later and said, we're ready to go. We need your okay. And I walked out and I looked around and I went, whoa. Um, any chance you could move it about two feet closer to the fence? And like this long face's jaw drops. And... I looked around and I realized that they had their whole truck up on blocks in order to make the drill vertical. And I just looked around and went, ah, go ahead. And um, so they fired this thing up and, and it sounded like chitty, chitty, bang, bang. <laughs> and this thing was actually kind of like on the shocks, on the blocks, jumping up and down. And uh, the drill was going around and they're throwing water at the hole and it was just making a mess. And the neighbors all started to show up. And uh, so one of the guys that came over was from across the fence, the electrical contractor who was in today. And he says, like, what are you doing now? And so I told him the story. And he said, well, my staff, are all, they're all going crazy. They want to go home. And I said, oh, why don't you just send them over? We'll buy them meals and they can drink beer all afternoon. And uh, we'll uh, maybe try and see how quickly we can finish this thing up. So they all booked off for the day and came upstairs and were happy campers. And um, I took off. <laughs> and they went out to Souk. And he phoned me about 1030 the next morning. He said, you're going to love us. Um, we're down 225 feet. We hit an aquifer and you got some sweet water coming up. Hmm. And so, um, we went 225 feet down through granite. Like we're right on the seashore. Um, and we broke into an aquifer that probably comes from across the Strait of Juan de Fuca out of the Olympic Peninsula. Uh, the water profile is different than the wells out on the peninsula. And actually, the area around Vic High was called Brewer's Hill. Uh, and it was known for having lots of wells. So these guys, like, well, they're old school. They're old family. And so they, they absolutely knew what they were doing. And so, yeah, we just, like, shit out luck. We hit mineral water. <laughs> Victoria T, you know. <laughs> so if you're, if you're trying to do a well, do you basically just drill until you hit something? Yeah, you just keep of, going. Yeah, you know the hydrologists would know where to go. Yeah, and what to do, and like for example, our well in Souk, we're just uh, eighty-five feet, and they hit rock, so we're eighty-five feet through sand and gravel, which is a nice filtration mechanism below the river, um, and the water there constantly throws minerals, rust. It's um, it needs to get filtered. Water in town doesn't need to get filtered. We do it because federal standards say that you must do this, you must do that. And we run it through UV to sterilize the bacteria that are not in there. Um, but other than that, it's just like straight up, it's delicious. It's the only locally produced mineral water. And what about the chocolates? Chocolates. I was at a brewer's conference in Chicago <laughs> and I ran into these guys from Cho. 
in San Francisco. Cho is put together by the people that uh, put together Wired magazine. And they had this really cool ethical story about their chocolate. And beyond the fact that their chocolate is ridiculously delicious, they had a really good backstory. So they were taking production back into the areas where the cacao was being grown. So cacao is chocolate is a really dirty subject. Um, and mm, there's a lot of severely impoverished people who grow cacao um, for nothing. And who never actually get to try and chocolate. And they never right? get to eat chocolate. They don't know what chocolate is. They've it's, never it's, had chocolate. I've heard little bits about this, and it's horrific. Yeah. Horrific. So um, Mary and I went down to San Francisco, and we went down to the pier, and we checked this out. And these guys, they went into East Germany and bought a chocolate plant that was like from about the time of the Industrial Revolution. And they uh, sandblasted it all and took it apart and cleaned it out and put it back together. And uh, it's just a really, really nice story all around. Um, and so we were the first people to bring Cho chocolates into Canada. Um, I'm kind of iffy right now on Cho. They got bought out by... Uh, a Japanese company. Um, the chocolate, Big chocolate changed <laughs> slightly in terms of how they present it. The flavor compounds are still good. They're still there. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, there's um, the guy in Victoria, uh, Taylor Kennedy, serene chocolate. Uh, I would love to use this stuff. It's going to cost about three times as much. Um, and I'm just not sure where the threshold is at the moment, but we're all working with Taylor. He's providing us, uh, some husks and stuff that are going into, um, our chocoholic, uh, which is one of our spirits. Um, and it's ridiculously delicious. Yeah. So what's that one? What's the chocoholic? Oh, so the, uh, what well, we do a chocoholic, uh, uh, liqueur and a chocoholic stout too, which is fine. But uh, we use the cocoa husks, uh, like so it's the husk of the bean, which doesn't have any of the sugars. It's just this really rich, dry chocolate, dark chocolate flavor, just from the oils on the husk. So um, I, and on the brewing side, I use them in the kettle, and we add them to like a nice ch chocolate beer without adding any fake chocolate or actually any chocolate in. It's just this essence. Where uh, Cal on the distillery side is uh, steeping her uh, vodka or base spirit when she feels like uh, in these and just pulling those rich dry flavors out it's absolutely it's luscious as a, as a liqueur yeah. yeah it's yeah um i on a on a trip to peru uh we were in otalitambu waiting for the train to go down to machu picchu um and there was um, a chocolate shop uh just down the street from the train station and as a welcome uh, gesture, they handed me a cup of chocolate tea when I walked in, and it was steeped husks. And I just went, bingo. We're making chocolate beer. We should be using these to make the brewing water taste like chocolate before we even start these things. 
Um, and so it's just kind of like one thing led to another. And you guys also have an on-site bakery. Yeah. yeah. So is that all the bread is being made in-house and everything in the restaurant? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Cause that, that one, one important thing, like I had the chicken burger today, which was phenomenal hmm. and it's really important. Like the bun, the bun, when you have a burger or, or sandwich or whatever, the bread or the bun is like, it's so right. fundamentally important. It's the vessel, right? It's the most, 100%. It's getting it to your yeah. mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so important. <laughs> yeah. So bread making and beer making are the same, aren't they? Like it's a, it's a fermentation project and so is chocolate. Uh, so the opportunity to, um, have this um, major garbage pail vessel uh, full of um, sourdough starter. It's just like it's life. It's living. It's it's like all the other stuff that we're doing. And like you said, it makes all the difference in the flavor right there. there if you're doing and it and the texture. Yeah, In-house. especially if you have like an heirloom starter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I assume it's probably how old is the starter? Thirty years old, I think. No, no, it's only about five years old, five or six years old uh, at this point. Okay, they saved but, it from the fire at least the, one, <laughs> the first one. That was yeah, it's been well on our last fire uh, <laughs> when we were closed. Also, at the beginning of the the pandemic thing, um, chef took the sourdough starter home. <laughs> it lived in her house, and she fed it every day. <laughs> Hey, you and that's them. just what you have to do with with real food um and you know the opportunity to have real food is is something that we cherish it's it's um part of the fabric of who we are it's um it's part of you know where we live that we are afforded the opportunities to to do this to be like this to enjoy this when you were first going like farm to table what did the landscape look like in Victoria and like the West Coast of for cuisine and restaurants? We had a guy, um, David Craven, who um, lived up island. And he, he would come in once or twice a week. And it took me a while to figure out that he actually lived up island. But he would come to town once a week to, to get provisions. And he would um, always stop in for lunch and have a beer. And um, when I asked him what he did, he told me he was a hog producer. <laughs> and I just like, like, why would you produce hogs? Um, and he struggled. And ultimately, he went out of business. And that's old school agriculture. Uh, and so what I have been so privileged to, to watch over the last 35 years is this transition between old style, small scale industrial agriculture uh, to where we are today, where we have this multitude of young people who are growing things with passion and being here on the West Coast and me having spent so much time in Vancouver and understanding the, the multi-ethnicity of the opportunities that we have on the West Coast, um, we can grow anything from anywhere. And so our tables are very rich, um, and I would say uniquely so. <clears throat> and it's like we, you know, we were talking earlier about old world, new world. Uh, we have this opportunity to scour 
uh, Europe, South America, Asia, and bring all of these things to our table. And they become the cuisine that is Southern Vancouver Island, which differentiates us from the prairies, Ontario, East Coast. And we, we're developing in the face of globalization, this regionality. And that gives people reason to travel. Mm -hmm. And so when we travel, we absolutely appreciate uh, the bounty of whatever country it is, whatever uh, part of the world it is. And I think uniquely here, we are lacking tradition and open again to experimentation. Um, and so what better place to be? We're so lucky. So is it creating tradition now with what's going on in yeah. this area? Yeah. We're in, the, we're in the midst of, of creating that. I think yeah. so. And we just eat so much better than most people do. And I really think that's just... And we just have access to all of this stuff for like nine months a year. And it's like, okay, we're starting to get towards squash season. Yeah, and we're going to eat winter veg for four months. <laughs> and then we're going to celebrate when asparagus starts coming up. And we go through this whole orchestrated thing that's a function of our climate. And then you get spot prawns for a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. That's the best. Uh, and that, uh, I think, how special is this? And I think especially after this whole uh, pandemic thing, and not after, but, but really regionalizing us and really focusing back in on Victoria and this area. It's like, we just can't run to Vancouver. We can't go anywhere. So it's, it's I'm starting to build a culture within ourselves that we, we had a bit of a culture, but it was mostly for tourists. But now it's, we're creating something as a city <clears throat> and as a island as a, of our own, I, I really think. I think people are getting more, more interested in supporting local like farms and, and really getting local produce since COVID's hit. Absolutely. I think there's been a lot more interest in it. And how many different partnerships do you guys have with like farms and different local producers? And the neighborhood of 35 or so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that's, that it's a lot more work to do what we do. Um, it would be so much easier to just send Cisco, your order yeah. into Cisco, <laughs> yeah, and, Cisco sit back and, and wait and take it out of the box and throw it on the grill. A hundred percent. It's just so much more work, but it's so much more rewarding. And when we started doing this, there was uh, Sinclair and Frederick out at Sioux Harbor House. Um, and there was um, you know, some stuff going on in California. Um, the farm to table really did not particularly exist um, back then. Uh, and, and so the, you know, for me, the opportunity to have, have watched this come about has been Particularly cool. I remember an episode when I was a really little kid. I, I think I was probably five. And there were some friends of my parents who had had enough of city life, like city life in Victoria in the mid-50s, huh? Um, and they were selling off their possessions, and they were moving up island to a farm. And everybody was, all their friends were horrified. It was like, what's wrong with these people? Who are they? What are they doing? And I remember being at a like a a yard sale where they were getting rid of their stuff, and I kind of forgot about it. It was just like an episode from childhood that 
was not a big deal. And then there was a Feast of Fields um, probably 10 years ago. I still have to go to that event. That was great. And great um, this one was at Fairburn Farm. Um, and these are the people that did the water buffalo. And we arrived there for setup. And I just got this like really eerie feeling. And I went for a walk and I realized I'd been there that long ago. Like when I was a kid, I was on that farm. And these guys were outliers. And now these guys are the center attraction. And they began IOPA, the Island Organic Producers Association. They, they were the seeds of what's going on today. It's, it's so like, important to have cool. those people that that just they have they believe in something, yeah, and they do it. Doesn't matter if if nobody else is doing it. Doesn't matter. Yeah. They believe in it so strongly they just have to. Even if some people might be like, "Why are you doing that? Yeah. Why are you doing that?" You just you follow that passion, and I and I I really respect people that stick with their guns and do it because they love it. And the horrendous process they were put through by the Federal Department of Agriculture. <laughs> You know, fundamentally just killed off their herd and allowed them to keep the second generation that were born here because they would be disease free. It's like, wow. <laughs> Brutal. What yeah. we do to people. Um, and they stuck with it and kept going. It's getting better. Times are changing. Yeah. We're becoming more receptive. Um, but yeah, they kept, they stuck to it. They kept going. Good for them. Yeah. That's really important that people are willing to do that. Yeah. And if you go down to Prima Stata on Cook Street, you can see the photograph on the wall of Daryl, who is the son, um, and one of the herd. It's a great photograph. Really? Yeah. Okay, when I'm in there next, I'll have to yeah. check it out. <laughs> yeah, go check it out. How has... Um, great pizza, too. Absolutely. Uh, I want to try the pizza at Spinnaker's. I never have. I Actually, one it. item that I have had that I loved was the uh, pulled pork nachos. Oh, yeah. I think some of the best nachos, probably the best nachos in town. I, those ones stand out for me. Yeah. But early in the year, we did have COVID hit, and we're in the middle of the pandemic. And um, how have things changed for Spinnaker's since that's happened? What, what, what is the, what's it look like for you guys? Well, we kind of laughed and said we're going back to 1984. <laughs> we're, uh, we're very fortunate to have a building that's large enough that we are uh, through the process of maintaining social distancing, uh, able to have about the same number of people spread over two floors as we had back in 1984. And we, we basically just re-engineered how we do what we do um, in order to make it work. And that's, that's every restaurant now. And every every business is just, just trying to revamp a new system. And it's been stumbles along the way for everybody i'm sure but everybody's learning it's, of course it's a very different world but uh yeah i think the big one for us too is the um it's not as many people coming in and having beers it's like it's lacking that one so we become more of a production brewery and kind of gearing our things towards more packaged products than we normally would have mm -hmm. yeah so that's so that's one of the big changes yeah absolutely our big yeah, adjustments. We're, we're down to about uh, summertime is is our was our historically busy time um, and so with the loss of capacity um, and able to make up some of the interior capacity by adding 
some seats out in the parking lot. We were down about 40%. Um, as we get into fall, winter season, we're down about 15% now. Um, and versus, versus last year. Yeah. And um, we're going to do fine. I'm really happy we're, to hear we're that. We're fortunate yeah. enough to have a large enough property to be diverse enough um, that we'll be fine. We'll survive. I'm very happy to hear and that. And I, <laughs> I, feel, uh, I feel very sad for so many people, young and old, um, who just don't find themselves in a set of circumstances that enables them to be successful. It's Look. devastating that, that people, unfortunately, are going to lose yeah. what they've created and at no fault of their own. Yeah. They did yes. nothing wrong. That's just a changed reality. And yeah. so we all have to figure out how we adapt to that changed reality and find our ways to make it work. And you know, I, very much it's a function of individual properties um, and um, individuals' um, ability to create opportunity out of what, what they see lying around them. But yeah, absolutely, it could be devastating. Yeah, Sorry, there's a, a lot of dishes I won't be able to eat again for <laughs> ever because of this. People, these beautiful restaurants shutting down, and that's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, so like, although a place did shut down, I don't think it was COVID related, but uh, Northern Quarter, I loved their brunch so much, and I didn't get to go because I didn't realize they were closing down. Mm -hmm. And then I saw after it, it, it had um, uh, stopped, and I was I was very sad. That was the best charcuterie bar in town, bar none, <laughs> absolutely at, at Northern Quarter. I, I do know that Torn now is at Foo, so Torn is is there. But uh, yeah, I do I do miss the brunch there quite a bit. Yeah. So when we look at the food in the restaurant, what is the inspiration for it? I would I would guess it's probably being the Pacific Northwest. But is what is the inspiration for the food? Hunger pangs. <laughs> um, um, it was. Um, it, it goes back to uh, the early days. Um, when it was important to have copious quantities of food on the plate, um, we had no advertising budget when we opened. We put all that money that we might have spent uh, through whatever form of media marketing or whatever into kitchen cost of sales. And we ran a ridiculously high cost of sales for about five years, five or six years, um, as an inducement, as a brewery pub to break into what was traditionally a restaurant marketplace. And we had a lot of upset restaurateurs in town um, at what we were doing and that we were um essentially subsidizing the kitchen and and food cost of sales uh by selling lots of beer um we gave birth through that process to what became known as the pub style restaurant where restaurants wanted to behave like pubs under different licenses um and that whole genre was after we opened and people started to emulate what we were doing. Um, and then 
um, <clears throat> when when I came when we came back from Seattle, uh, where we opened a couple of brew pubs in, in the late '80s, um, uh, it was necessary to solve this cost of sales problem, <clears throat> which had become a big problem because food was consistently at least fifty percent of what we sold. And so if you're doing half of what you sell at a cost of sales of 50, 60%, um, it's difficult to pay labor and pay the other expenses that go along with the place. And so we need to, to whittle that down to a reasonable number. And so one of the things that I came up with for doing that was to use local food because competition could not use local food because nobody was doing local food because local food didn't particularly exist in our neighborhood at that time, except for at Sioux Harbor House, which was very, very high end. So my line of thinking, my rationale was if, if we could uh, do local food, uh, we could charge more for what we were selling. And we got pushback on it. Um, and what we did was we steered away from traditional items, except for those things that we absolutely could not get rid of that we still sell today, like halibut and chips. Um, and we went searching for people to grow this stuff for us. And what we learned of the process of doing that was that farmers were poor. And when we put the fact that farmers drove beat up old trucks together with the fact that people didn't want to pay more for their food, it was pretty easy to explain to them that, you know what, we know the guy that grows this for us. And if he doesn't get a better truck, he's not going to make it here someday. And he has just as much right to a living as the rest of us do. And so we need to be respectful and pay him more. And if you want cheap food, maybe you'd be happier going down the street. And so once we were able to work that kind of language into people, then we were able to get away from this ridiculously high food cost, uh, which was uh, even then based on pretty much everything coming out of Mexico and California through multinational suppliers. Uh, so branching off into locally grown food and supporting local people was a breakthrough moment for us um, and enabled us to move what we did away from what the rest of the marketplace was doing. And so we lost a few consumers who weren't prepared to follow us down that road. But in the last, what, five, seven years, everybody wants to be local now. Uh, so what we do is um, we're, we're well positioned for that at this point. And again, that's sticking with your guns, having a belief yeah. and just doing and, it when other people are questioning why, why are you doing this? Yeah. And so to the inspiration, it's local seasonal. Like, like what's available now? Um, you mentioned spot prawns. That's, yeah. that's, that's a short season. Uh, and so many of these food items have very short seasons when they are at their best. And I, I kind of like pushed back against eating tomatoes in December, January. 
I would way rather have a tomato that had been turned into some kind of a powerful tasting relish that I can spread around instead of squishing some ubiquitous red thing out of a bottle. (laughs) (laughs) I've, I've really been thinking about that more, more and more is like, I shouldn't be eating certain things in certain times of the year. Because the more people I'm talking to, and they're describing how they used to live when they, when they lived elsewhere, um, that's that's how people eat. That's a, I'm from Ontario originally, and you'd be under three feet, four feet of snow, and I'm like, of course you're not going to grow anything, but still, it just kind of had that same yeah. that negative feeling. For, yeah. And moving here and having to explore this, like, why wouldn't you want what is being able to be grown a week ago? You know, ten feet down the road or whatnot, and just seems way more makes well, more sense stuff tastes so much better and, oh. and it lasts it's healthier so much oh, longer absolutely there's more nutrients in it 100 percent. yeah absolutely it's like don't eat junk eat good food <laughs> like i'm going back to the, in my head to back to the lettuce i got from the the farmer die guys the agriculture guys and i got this lettuce that still stands out to me because a month later it was still as good as the very first day when i got it yeah. like legit like it was it hadn't deteriorated it seemed like at all <laughs> And it was insane. I you you can't find that in a store. No, not at all. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's uh, it again goes back to where we where we live. And there's a reason why we live here. Why are we celebrating that? Yeah, I, I think there is a disconnect too with food costs and what people associate how much something should cost. Because mm-hmm. I feel like people think that it, the people's conception of what food, how much it should cost, that their their per- perception is it's way too cheap. Or it should be cheaper than it is. Yeah. Like absolutely. it actually should cost absolutely. way more than what it, what it does. It should cost a lot more. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we grew up in a culture of cheap food. Uh, we grew up in a culture of industrialized production of cheap food. Um, and I think the real tragedy is that so many people who are poor people eat such terrible food because... That's what they think they can afford to eat. And so uh, there's a lot of people that are not very healthy as a consequence of eating bad food. Uh, So, again, we're fortunate to be here. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Like Paul said earlier, I think there's that really big disconnect of you got to know the Nate, your, your, your local farmer. If you saw this guy's family and, you know, he's just trying to make food and put money on his table... Would you really be trying to hack them down for another $2 or a dollar off or like that? You know? Yeah. There's consequences to these and, and we need these people to be doing this. So, a million percent. Yeah. They need to be supported. And then, like I said, I think since COVID, a lot more people are interested in shopping locally and, and pr- helping those producers. Rightfully so. And I think the other thing that it does is it's, it supports um, a growing cadre of individuals who actually like good food and want to produce good food um and you know as the covid thing carries on um i think it in 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 at the same time that it shuts down a bunch of restaurants i think it opens up opportunities for chefs and cooks who might have worked in those restaurants to find their own way of connecting with consumers and um creating their own way of remaining attached to making food and selling food and just um, the way in which we do it in a way in which we connect with people who are otherwise stuck at home 
it's going to evolve. So I think this winter is going to be really fun to watch and see who rises up uh, doing what um, in some cool ways. There's a lot of people who are not comfortable going out into restaurants. I'm one of those. And um, we, as a community, are going to find ways to connect with those people. And I think it's maybe premature to say what those ways are going to all look like, but it's going to happen for sure because that's what we as entrepreneurs do. And I say we in, in the grand scale of things, not, not us in particular, although we're going to have a stab at it too. <laughs> when do you guys do any type of like pairing dinners? Where you, where you pair we used to do lots of pairing dinners. Yeah. Um, they are an enormous amount of work. Um, and yeah. they're very, very difficult to do in these times. And we don't have the capacity to do them at this time. We don't o- have- outside of COVID, though, would you like when COVID's over and we're back to normal, will that be a thing? Do you think? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And it's I, a lot of work. I find yeah. that half the time is like your go, the work goes into you're kind of telling people what they're going to taste and like you like this and then they're like, oh, of course I taste that. And we're like, oh, you're kind yeah. of losing that kind of fun of like, oh, what is like, why does this pair with it? And like, I, it's tough. I, I, I've never. Yeah, we haven't done them for really quite a long time now. Yeah. Okay. And I kind of got, I just kind of, I got tired of doing them. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's always a spiel and a well, speech. Uh, going, yeah. But they are an, an enormous amount of yeah. work. And in order to do them, you have to set aside a large area, which means that you're denying access to other people who just might show up. And you kind of look at the balance of it all. It's like 40, like five ounce tasters. You're not. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's. I, I understand the, the reasons for it and that, but I'm, I, I personally have never been a huge fan. Like, there's always classic pairings that go with it, but it's very subjective. It's. And like I said, everybody's palate's different, and you're going to find something that's you find absolutely yeah. lovely compared to somebody else's. For everybody's sure. palate is definitely different. Mine, I always like my palate's not that great, so I always go back well, to like say it's not great. It's your palate. It's, well, no, yeah. but like I, I just mean I, I can't explain things the way I want to explain them when I'm saying like, oh, this is like this. I go back to very rudimentary, like basic stuff. Like, I, and I, sometimes I'll say to somebody and in my head, I'm like, am I insulting them by comparing it to this thing? No. But it's, it's but, like, it's like the, like, like a pizza pop, but like to the nth degree. Yeah. Like yeah, next, next yeah, level. Yeah, like, yeah, like, but, like this kind of thing. That, that's what goes through my with, head. Yeah. Just connecting with who you're on the other side. That's, uh, <laughs> but that's, yeah. It's just like, you could basically, like, I, I don't think I have a great palate myself. I can pick up, there's certain things I'm very susceptible to uh, and some things I just can't. And that's very hard to describe to somebody, like explain the color purple to me or you know just describe apple you know it's yeah. very different and you're going to have very different sensories with that so who am i to tell you what you're going to like and not like what's uh, with something mm-hmm. else mm-hmm. yeah you can yeah like it's uh, we, we've had experience with um individuals who are ridiculously eloquent in describing what it is that you're about to taste and and um i'm, I'm not sure that you know stand up <laughs> comedy is not important some of their talents <laughs> you might have a hint of flashing red light and <laughs> and horse blanket you know it's 
Oh, it yeah. was funny because when we used to do the TV segments, uh, Joe Perkins, Mike, and I, we would we would do the segments, and uh, they would always put the camera on me and be like, "Okay, describe what you're having." And I'm like, I don't know how to describe this. And I think Joe, Joe eventually got so annoyed with me because that's all I'd say. Oh, well, that's and yeah. I just didn't know. It was hilarious. I thought it was funny. So yeah, but, I, I, sometimes I did it a little bit. I maybe just to bug him a little bit. But well, <laughs> shout out to Joe. <laughs> I, I miss Joe, and I I, I miss those segments. It's uh, yeah, it's really. A, I, I find those it's very subjective. Like you, you can tell people what they're like. You 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 taste soap here? Oh, oh yes, I do taste soap now. Like, yeah, well, yeah. No, nothing soap in this. What are you talking about? But. <laughs> But of course, that's not slandering anybody's palate, or some people just have an amazing range of being able to pick up certain things. Of course. Another thing Spinnaker's has is accommodations. Has has the accommodations always been there, or is that did that get added in some point, or how did that go? People were just passing out the pa- uh, parking lot too often, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, back in in. Um... The early '90s, I had an opportunity to travel with Uko von Koizek, who is one of the guys who put Okanagan Springbury together. Buko is German. He um, and his family were actually in East Germany, and he managed to escape and walk across Europe, and ended up in in Vernon. And Buko and I went to Heidelberg to. Uh, investigate malting and we actually bought a malting plant there and set it up in Armstrong up just north of Vernon became Gambrinus malting and uh, we stayed at this uh, at the brewery that had the malting house and I became aware at that point of this kind of elite uh, group of breweries that also offered accommodation for travelers and I just thought it was a really cool concept. It was really fun to actually be able to stay at the brewery. And I didn't think anything about it and at some point. And I guess it was kind of like 1998. Um, a guy who ran a shop up in the corner of Catherine and Esquimalt called Tools and Space, he approached me one day and said, the, um, the elderly lady who's living next door is... Um, moving out and um, you should buy your house yeah why they said well you should do a b and b and i went are you kidding me like the house is a wreck it should be demolished except that it's on the heritage list and you got all the tools so like you're at a woodwork shop you do it and he went no you think about this go away and think about it so a couple of days later curiosity got the better of me and i'm in the bar and there's one of our regular patrons who runs a five-star B&B in James Bay is sitting at the bar, quaffing his pint of ESB. And I sat down beside him and said, so, hey, tell me, what's it cost to clean the room when people come and stay with you and stay overnight and then check out? And what's it cost you to feed them? He said, why are you asking me this question? So I told him about the house up the street, and he said, well, that'll be another pint. And so, long story short, two pints later, I had a spreadsheet, and uh, we were about to renovate the kitchen. And so, I had the banker in to song and dance my request for funding to redo the kitchen. And he, like, just kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we'll give you the money. Yeah, okay. So, I took my spreadsheet, and I slid it across the table, and I said, so, what do you think about this? 
And he looked at it. And he said, so what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to finance it. And he said, how much money are you going to put up? I said, none. <laughs> I want you to finance it. And he said, okay. So we bought the house. And then I got up there and crawled around and looked and realized that it was built in 1886. It had no foundation. It was sitting on rocks. And it was derelict. So um, we made application to the city to do an inn, uh, transient accommodation, went through 11 months process of public hearings and rezoning before getting to the point where we could get a building permit. And by the time we had the building permit issued, I was able to go in for an occupancy permit because we had rebuilt the whole building and had um, put it on a new foundation and stripped it to the outside skin, put in a sprinkler system because it was too close to the property line and we had to sprinkle the outside wall. And um, we just took down all the interior trims, uh, stripped them down, um, had them reproduced where we needed more, and we just recreated this uh, 1880s heritage house. Um, and I thought I could run it off the bar. So my idea was that the phone rings, the bartender picks up the phone and answers, and he flips open the book and he writes the person's name down, and, well, the date and so forth. And um, I didn't really anticipate servers would be standing there drumming their fingers on the bar top waiting for their drink order while this guy's selling rooms and like yeah that didn't work <laughs> uh, so that led to then um and closing the area where provisions is where uh we sell merchandise and chocolates and beer to go and all that kind of stuff because we needed a front desk to manage these rooms. And then I was, um, I was away on holidays and uh, the house next to us went up for sale. And so I arrived back and my brother said, hey, I bought you a house while you were away. And so that was the beginning of the garden suites. And uh, we, he bought one side and then very shortly after the other side came up. So that gave us an additional four rooms to so the five in the heritage house. And then we moved along and we moved into the building to the south of that, which was called Lime Bay House. Uh, but we never had control or ownership of that property. And so we ultimately moved out of that because we were just not comfortable with the uh, tenure situation. And um, Iris, who lived next door, then banged on the door one day and says, I'm going to sell my bungalow. Will you buy it from me? And so that became the bungalow. So that got us back to 10 rooms. That's awesome. Just how it all sort of organically just came up. And I guess once you did the first one, once you did the first one, it's like, well, we're already in the game. Well, we're already in the yeah. game. It's yeah. the same. So economy of scale kicks in. Um, and, and what we do is, is different than what everybody else does again. Um, so we are a hybrid where, you know, the, the, the rating agencies came and looked at Canada Select came in the door and like, they just didn't know what to do about us because we were not a B and B. We were classically not an inn. Uh, we're not a motel or a hotel. Um, so we just called them guest houses 
and it's an opportunity for people to come and they can hang out with us as much or as little as they want to. The best part is that, you know, coming in, we give them breakfast, but they don't have to wait for me to be there. Don't have to look at me in the morning. That's a good thing. Um, And we just give people full breakfast. Uh, So take your pick. Anything on the menu. That's awesome. Go for it. Yeah. That's way better than like any place you can stay. Crawl home at night and you will not wear out the knees on your pants. (laughs) So one thing I did want to touch on was the fire. The fire? I guess fires. Which Which one? one? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Third time's the charm. Has there, has there been three or just two? Just two, but two. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> so the, scared today, actually. The, the first one, what, what was that like trying to rebound from that? Uh, it was a remarkable experience. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. You go ahead. You, you uh, were here. I was, I was away when it happened. Yeah, he was on vacation. That <laughs> <laughs> was, but uh, it was one of the most well, like shocking and like I was, the, I think I was the last person out of the building, just kind of like making sure, clearing the rooms and such and just seeing the smoke and such, but, um, watching that, that day. And then those feelings and what came out of it, like months later of just seeing how much, um, uh, community and camaraderie became of that fire and what be like, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking to watch, but in hindsight, it was incredibly beautiful. What the, the, the city of Victoria did for us, um, what what our team did for each other and how we and what paul did for all of us it was a you know six months down the line we bounced back i think it was somewhere along that from november but uh it was it was heartbreaking and yeah (laughs) heartbreaking and also just amazing the community support and what came from that yeah and so um so what was this? What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I don't know. Bounce back, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, oh, I see. we were um, back in, in business for lunch on the main floor, four weeks to the meal. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, mm. the wall. And then we took another six weeks um, to get the top floor open again. Okay. Um, so one of the, one of the, uh, the challenges is, you know, the cyclical nature of, of the restaurant industry. We, really needed to be open for Christmas. So like the fire was on November 23rd and we absolutely needed the revenue hit, which for us, uh, but that period around Christmas and new year's is like going back into midsummer. We actually make money again instead of losing money. Uh, so from my perspective, it was absolutely critical that we make this happen. And one of the really cool things that, that came out of the process was, and these people absolutely did not need to do this for us. And they, they were just like outrageously magnificent, generous. And it was, it was, it was, it was very cool. But Downs Construction, the, the, the contractor that came in actually employed our staff. We, we kept everybody on payroll. And we availed them to them to use as they could. And they kept them all safe. So nobody got hurt. Nobody hurt somebody else. Um, and to, we, when, when this, this whole thing happened, as Patty said, well, we were away. And, um, the, the next day, my wife said, um, we should go home. 
And I said, no, we should stay here because what I'm seeing people say is better than I could say. And we should let the management team be managers and let them do what they can. And we should finish our holiday, which was like another four days, um, and then go back. We're scheduled to be back in Victoria on a Monday. And we actually had a staff party planned for Monday night. And we planned on being closed that Monday night and going out and have a party. So when I came back in on Monday, I met with the insurance company who immediately told me that we were underinsured. Uh, and I said, thanks for your time. I need to get to the hospital because I had a broken hand and I needed to um, have some work done on it. And I came back in that afternoon and, and um, another restaurant in town that was closed gave us their space for the afternoon. And we had a staff meeting. And we had actually planned on rolling out an employee ownership plan that day. And we changed the agenda and just said, okay, you guys, whoever knows which end of the hammer you're supposed to hold over there, um, those who um, can help us out um, in other ways <clears throat> over here, and to the rest of you, um, you're all going to get paid, but it's not a holiday. So if you can't help in either of these two camps, then we're going to volunteer your time at the food banks and so forth. And we're going to do some community good here. And so we worked with everybody over the next four weeks to revamp um, manuals, uh, to rethink how we do what we do, um, and to really just reconceive uh, who we are and what's going on. And as Patty said, we were surrounded by phenomenal support from the city. Um, Van City was our lender and, and they held fundraisers for us. Uh, the Island Chef Collaborative had fundraisers for us. Other restaurants offered us their restaurants because they close at five and we could have their place at nights. Just, I mean, things that were just unimaginable. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody changed as a person in the process of doing this. And then at the same time, working with the contractor, we had people do extraordinary things that they would never normally do. And they understood the deadlines. And we had individuals who were project managers and who were superintendents and who were laborers who just went so far above and beyond to facilitate us getting back to business because as we came to learn, they all cared. And I think the fact that so many people cared about us had a massive impact on us. That it's just one of those things that until you go through, you can't imagine yeah. the impact of it all. Um, and I, you know, I, we were fortunate that we had the tools to do it, that my background enabled us to expedite this thing. I knew the building inside and out. I knew how it worked. I knew how it was put together. And when I was watching the video on, 
on TV and saw the fireman at the top of his ladder wailing on a wall with an axe. And he went, no, not there. That's not the problem. <laughs> uh, but it is what it is. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that the firemen came in and they took the boats down off of the, yeah. the mantelpiece, moved them across the room before they opened the hoses up and tried to put the fire out. I mean, they cared. And the fact that so many cared just blew us all away. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, that was ridiculous. I, lo- I loved the Victoria beforehand. Before that, yeah. and like, and I was still relatively newish to the city, and like, well, that that solidified it for me. That was just, just, it's a there's something special about the city, and that that really showed it right there. Yeah, it completely changed us all. Yeah, that was round one. That was the first one. Yeah, <laughs> that was the first one. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of good did come out of that then. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know. it's unfortunate, of course, that it happened, but it sounds like there was a lot of yeah, growth. and the upper floor all rebuilt and everything. The Phoenix <laughs> of the Fire type of situation. Right, yeah. until we burned it out again. Yeah. yeah the so Phoenix caught the Phoenix on flame a second time. Yeah, this, this, <laughs> the second one hit then. That, that was this year. Well, the second one happened the uh, night that we closed. It was uh, the night that Dr. Henry said that we should close all bars and restaurants because it's St. Patrick's Day and... We need to like manage this COVID thing. And we'd actually made the decision first thing that morning yeah. to close. So we kind of beat her to the punch. But I just handed one of our guys in Belt Center and said, let's take advantage of this and sand down the bar top. And he did. And so the sandings from the bar top spontaneously combusted in the Belt Center bag that night. And the same thing happened all over again. Oh, it wasn't too, like, it was more of a, this one wasn't as extensive yeah. structurally. Yeah. Um, but you know, we brought down the ceiling in the kitchen again, lots of water damage, smoke damage. We got new drywall everywhere, new flooring again. And I've never seen a TV melt. And there was, <laughs> like yeah. it was there, all the TVs in the upper floor were. And made- so we met the next morning with the same claims adjuster and the same superintendent from Downs Construction. And they just said, you're going to use your guys to fix this. I went, nope. That's why it happened, because we're out of here. Um, so you guys just come in and do it. So we all basically took a break. Mm-hmm. We all walked away. We went into lockdown. And I went out to Souk and pruned orchards and did stuff that I've actually never had time to do before. Um, and it was until we got the kitchen back about four weeks later that I was able to start making call to people in the kitchen. Uh, the brewery people kept working all the way through and making beer and taking beer to market. And it was the fact that spring was coming and we needed to be buying food from farmers. Otherwise they would have no market that motivated people to come back to work. And so again, it's that community. And, you know, at the end of the day, what's a pub? A pub is a community hangout. It's yep. a community living room. And I think that these episodes simply reinforce our position as a, a community living room. And, and our community is big. It's, it's widespread. It goes all the way up island, extends to the mainland. Um, there's a lot of people who I have to keep telling people think that they're regulars. They come here whenever they can, which might only be twice a year, but that's, that's how they hold us. Um, and we need to be ready for that. And it's interesting bringing new people in, especially front of house, trying to have them understand that <clears throat> there is this huge segment of population out there who holds us dearly in some in some fashion, and that 
they need to understand that these people come in the door with the set of expectations based on personal experience. And as a newbie, they need to figure out the kind of language that we use to um, make them comfortable, make it a, you know, a continuous kind of experience. It's that classic. I used to drink here when I was in college, you know, I had my very yeah. first beer. Here, the uh, so many people I met my wife here was our yeah. first date here. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. just thousands it's, of, it's like a ridiculously common story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love the, the, uh, the term community, um, living room. Yeah. I love that. Well, that's what we are. It's, what is, what does the future for Spinnakers look like? Is there anything upcoming that you've got planned or? I, you know, I think as, as we continue to uh, go down uh, different divergent um, pathways, uh, I have a, <clears throat> I have a, um, a, a mind that tends to wander. And um, if, if the people around me can keep up with some of the crazy ideas and uh, find ways to embrace them and take them on and challenge them, there's really nothing we can't do. So what, five years ago, we started making cider. We took out a winery license and, um, that's been really fun. Uh, we are doing to cider what we did to craft beer. Um, we, a year ago, kind of figured out what distilling actually looks like and how it actually works. No one went blind. That was the best part about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so we've got, uh, a, just like a super interesting parade of uh, distilled products coming. Uh, Sean Stuhl in, in reviewing our stuff is, has already said that he's astonished by the variety of products that we are making. And I think that's uniquely what we can do because our, our point of sale is the bar. Uh, so we can make tiny batches. Get to play. And, and we can play. Yep. Um, and when we find something that we think really is cool and has a place in market, then we can ramp up production on it and take it to market. Mm -hmm. um, we are about to launch a line of craft sodas. We've got half a dozen that we're ready to put into tall cans and take to market. And, and again, it's just, you know, it's, it's an interesting collaboration where, uh, Christopher Hoven, who had, uh, Victoria Craft Spirits, Craft, Craft Soda. Victoria Soda Works. Um, he realized in February that he wasn't going to make it. And he's need, he's got families. He's like, you need stability in your life. And I'd been looking for a while to get into that channel. Um, and so he walked in our door and I just said, let's just do this. I mean, this, this, this is awesome. This is fun. And we take what he knows how to do and we put it with our well. So we end up with a, um, a line of flavored mineral waters that like no sugar, no calories, tonics and sodas, um, yeah, tonics and sodas that go with spirits. Um, the complexities, I think just increase. As time goes on, I'm excited for and that. It just becomes yeah. more fun, and just a gem of a human being too. And such, super happy to have him part of the yeah. team. Just and one of our biggest challenges is is just physical space. Yeah. So you know, we were very very fortunate to be able to acquire the warehouse over in Viewfield, uh, which gave us 
uh, for now, 23,000 square feet to play with. I just, yeah, I, I can't, like three years ago, you guys didn't have this place. And I just, I can't imagine, like seeing how it is now and what's in here. Oh, we wouldn't like, be able to do this. Well, no, no it just, yeah. where was all this stuff? And I know you said that it, it didn't exist, a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but the, now, like seeing it all here, I'm like, how do, how do you not have this stuff? Yeah. Like it just, it, it, that just seems like radical growth very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. It's well, well naturally though. It kind of no, no, in, in a good way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. In a, good way. in a very natural way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and where do you see the uh, like the craft brewing and and all the all the different like the vinegars and all these craft things you're doing? Where where do those go in the future? Do you see any any new things coming on board? It's, it's hard to say in like the whole craft beer. Let's like, just say beer as an example of where it's going to go because it's putting any type of projection on it could it's it's i find it kind of silly like this is the whole point of what we and everybody does in the craft beer uh, the north american movement is what can we do and so it's i i find it more more fun and exciting to see what people are coming up with and what we come up with than try to just benchmark and push, put a spot there like we're gonna do that like it's not what we do i feel as we kind of find new ideas all the time and I always end these things by asking, what is like the biggest lesson or takeaway that you've learned in your time working with food, alcohol, or whatever, uh, working with the hospitality industry? Oh, that's a good one. What, com- good. what comes to mind? I think I figure that's a good way to end these things. Um, I, I think from a personal perspective, it's um, don't be afraid to try. Uh, <clears throat> find the um, the most fun people you can have to surround yourself with uh, and enjoy what each other's capable of bringing to the table. Um, Celebrate where we live, uh, the raw materials that we have access to. Uh, I I just think we live in a very unique environment, um, both in terms of what the, the physical environment is and what the social climate is. Um, and, uh, the influences that, uh, are becoming part of the fabric of, of what our society is. And we, th- there are certainly, you know, challenges that are out there. Um, I think we are here fortunate, uh, to be not as impacted as, uh, many are in other locations. Um, and I think most of all, we need to celebrate, uh, who we are, what we have, uh, share with each other, um, eat and drink each other's stuff. And yeah, go buy that it. bottle from the other brewery, go buy that bag of lettuce or some, go out and support and help and celebrate. Absolutely. That was one of the first things you said today. I think that stood out to me is this sort of commenting how it is. Everyone needs to lift each other up. That's how we all get better at what we do, and that's how we succeed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Gentlemen, this has been amazing. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. We're, we're just under two and a half hours right now. Oh, okay. Not too bad. So, uh, yeah. This has been amazing. Excellent. Any yeah. more barrels you want to go pop open before we go? <laughs> so if, if, people, if people want to find out more about Spinnakers, where should they go? Spinnakers. <laughs> just go to the place? Yeah, yeah. Just come visit. Of course, the website at spinnakers.com, and check out our social media. But uh, – Come down. Come say hello. Everyone needs to come. There's something here for everyone, like legit. Yeah. And if you're looking for what I'm doing, you can go to vicfoodguys.ca. I would appreciate it if you did give a like or 
subscribe or whatever, whatever platform you're consuming this. And I'll be back next Tuesday. I'll see you then. Bye.